spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Orion Pictures presents Wolfen. For centuries, they have been hiding in the rubble of your cities. The concealed threat. The invisible terror. Chris! They can sense the rhythm of your blood. Hear clouds pass overhead. See where you are blind. A force so deadly, it will tear the screen from your throat. Wherever you are, they are. Somewhere in the world, every other day, a corporate executive is assassinated. Team her up with Wilson. Murphy or Mahoney, I'm comfortable with. You're uncomfortable? With surprises. There's not a trace. Not a speck of metal. Nothing softer could have ripped ravaged like this. Is it an animal? Well, it ain't human. Do you realize how many people disappeared without a trace? Something out there might be eating people. Did you hear that? Yeah! Get out of there! What do you think it was? You were being lured. We were being separated. By what? The carnivore. You got yourself some kind of meat eater. Meat eater. Meat eater. Meat eater. Meat eater. What is it? It's wolfing. They're only animals. They might be gods. In their eyes, you are the savage. Wolfen. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. How's it going? Good to see you. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Stephen Graham Jones. Glad to be here. Ready to talk about some Wolfen. Shocktober 2019 continues with a look at the 1981 movie from director Michael Wadley, Wolfen. Based loosely on the 1978 book by Whitley Strieber, the film stars Albert Finney as Dewey Wilson, a world-weary New York cop who is assigned to the macabre murder of a real estate mogul, Peter Vanderveer. Initially thought to be a terrorist plot, Wilson is assigned psychologist Neff, played by Diana Verona, to add in his pursuit. They soon learn that they are facing something much more sinister and much older. We are going to be spoiling Wolfen for anyone who has not seen it before, as well as the book, and maybe a few other things along the way, so consider yourself warned. 
So, Stephen, when was the first time you saw Wolfen, and what did you think? First time I saw it would have been late 80s. It was the first horror novel I ever read, so it was in my veins, in my life. But Howling was actually the first werewolf movie I saw, so yeah, I didn't catch on to Wolfen until late 80s. And I think the first time I saw it, I wanted more crazy, over-the-top werewolf action, you know? I was, what, probably 15 or something. Yeah, this definitely is not a werewolf movie, even though it was kind of sold that way. It's it's arguable. I, I would I'm not considered a werewolf movie. I don't know. I don't think you necessarily have to have transformation sequences and somebody waking up naked in a hayloft to be a werewolf movie. To me, these guys, these wolfen, can be considered werewolves. I mean, they're what Canis Lupus Sapiens. I mean, werewolf is a matching together of man and wolf, and they have some sort of human intelligence maybe not human they have an intelligence higher than we usually assign animals anyways and i mean they can engage in symbolic thinking you know at the end of the movie when um dewey detective dewey i guess i shouldn't call him that that's too much like scream huh when dewey wilson is um destroying the little mock-up of the real estate project they understand what he's doing they're able to understand this is a miniature of a future possibility you know and to me they kind of are werewolves. They're actually in my novel Mongrels, these wolfen are what I tried to make my werewolves look like, even though my werewolves my werewolves do transform back from human to wolf. So Jedediah, when did you first see Wolfen and what did you think? I first saw Wolfen just a couple of years ago. I think it was uh, 2016, 2017. And actually my seeing of Wolfen coincided uh, within probably weeks of having read Stephen's book, Mongrels, which uh, I'd read a handful of Stephen's books before, but Mongrels really, really kind of blew me away. I've, I'd never read a werewolf novel before, but um, I'd certainly seen some movies, and I thought I had uh, some, you know, pretty good ideas of what to expect, but I, I was uh, I was very pleasantly surprised and uh, found um, a lot of cool things that I'd never thought of in uh, werewolf text uh, in his stuff, and then happened to see, I read his book over the summer, and then happened as we were getting, you know, toward the end of the summer and, and into Halloween season, I think I was just looking for scary movies and, and stuff I'd never seen. I, I came across Wolfen on a streaming site, I don't remember which uh, site it was, but uh, I put it on and was really kind of blown away by it. it. It was not at all what I expected it to be. You know, I knew the poster with the great uh, gleaming eyes and teeth and uh, coming out of the very, you know, the blackness. But that is the only context I had uh, for the movie, and it, it was a lot more and a lot uh, different than I was expecting, and I saw so many similarities from my very limited perspective on what werewolf stories are and things like that i i felt like uh it was very kindred to steven's novel mongrels and uh so um i got very excited about those kind of connections and then frankly i'm i would be so happy just to sit back and listen to uh <laughs> steven talk about this movie and what it meant to him but uh yeah i love the movie uh from the first time and i i have uh just this week watched it again but only, yeah, only seen it a couple of times now. I think I saw this movie the first time when I was probably like 13, 14 years old and was just so shocked by the level of violence, especially in the first few minutes. I mean, the whole idea of the 
bodyguard getting his hand bit off and that the hand is still moving, the people getting their throats ripped out. I mean, this was really gory for me as a young teenager. And I will admit that until I ended up reading the book, reading the screenplay, reading all these articles about it, I had to do a lot of reading basically before I could actually understand what the hell was going on with this movie. And Finally, maybe yesterday when I watched it for probably like the fifth time, it finally clicked for me where I was like, okay, now I understand what you're trying to say, but this is a fucking dense film. Michael Wadley, the director, he, he took um, Stryber's novel. I mean, they, they both have like ecological concerns, I guess, or how good – like they're, they're both kind of probing into how good of citizens are we on the planet and not, not necessarily garden, guardians, but how are we messing things up. And um, I think Wadley sensed that core of possibility in Stryber's novel and then he just did something completely – not different, but he magnified it in a way that um, Stryber kind of thought it – I think Stryber, didn't he think it made, it, made the movie colder or something? I want to say he did. I mean, it's definitely super different than what he was giving us. But you're right. It's kind of like Wadley took the novel and exploded it into a much bigger story. Because the story by uh, the, the, the Wolfen book is basically it's a couple of days. And it's a few policemen, two policemen who are killed by these younger Wolfen. And they shouldn't have been killed um, because then that opens them up to investigation. And then basically once the Wolfen figure out, hey, these two detectives, because Neff and Wilson are partners in the book, they're not shoved together like they are in the movie. Once they figure out these two detectives are on to us, we have to kill everybody who knows about us, especially these two. And there's a whole thing about Neff's husband and Neff falling in love with Wilson or Wilson falling in love with Neff. And it's, there's some similarities, but there's a ton of differences as well. And all of the stuff with Native Americans and shape shifting and terrorism that is off the table in the book. Oh, yeah, for sure. Ebert says in his review of Wolfen, Wolfen is not about werewolves, but about the possibility that Indian wo- Indians and wolves can exchange souls, which at the time I wrote Mongrels, I didn't, I wasn't aware of Roger Ebert's review of Wolfen, but I probably would have tried to use that as an epigraph or something, you know, um, because that's what I'm kind of, I don't know, kind of against anyways. But in Wolfen, I prefer the novel myself because in the novel you get to go into the pack's head, into the wolfen's head. But the big difference in the movie and the novel for me anyways is the end. You know, it's wild. It's wildly different. And the novel wolfen, it ends much like the howling ends, the movie howling with um, the public now becoming aware that these creatures exist. Whereas in the movie, the secret is kept, you know, and we're supposed to, as the audience, understand that we have this shadow of civilization, this predatory shadow civilization living beside us, and we should um, police our own behavior better. I, yeah, I prefer I prefer the novel ending myself. Well, the movie is set 
very much in early 80s, late 70s, New York City. I mean, the, the book is set there as well, but the movie really embraces that and the whole idea of rich people being kidnapped. Um, I mean, if you've seen all the money in the world, you know that that happens. Um, rich people being kidnapped, uh, domestic terrorism, worldwide terrorism, uh, the idea of uh, New York City at that very particular time. I mean, looking at this movie and seeing the South Bronx being portrayed the, the way that it is, I mean, this is, it's almost a documentary looking at these buildings and how everything is completely burned down, torn down, just gutted this whole, they describe it in this, in the script as Dresden after the war. And that's what it looks like. It looks like the whole area has been firebombed, but this is what New York looked like, you know, at least the South Bronx in the late seventies, early eighties. And I don't know if people now would see this and think, Oh, well this moonscape that they're on, there's no way that this really existed. You know, this is not the New York of today, but this is the the real deal. This is, you know, we talked about this in cruising, like the whole idea of the city going bankrupt and, you know, Ford tells city to drop dead, those kind of things. I mean, New York was really suffering. And this is this urban, I can't even say blight, this urban ruination was a real thing. And this is indicative of what was happening at the time. Being in uh, St. Louis, uh, People here love to tell uh, that uh, John Carpenter filmed a lot of Escape from New York in St. Louis because it was so uh, bombed out looking and, and awful. But look, watching it, watching this film, I'm like, shit, <laughs> God, that that I mean, I know they knock these buildings down for a movie. That just that's what it looked like. That's that's incredible. Uh, I don't know why they didn't. <laughs> and just film Escape from New York there. Maybe they needed a few more buildings to actually be standing. By the 1970s, the Bronx experienced some of the worst ravages of urban decay, with the loss of 300,000 residents and the destruction of entire city blocks worth of buildings. The media attention brought the South Bronx into the national spotlight. Politicians like Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan visited the area and declared them disaster areas. Charlotte Street, at the time of Carter's visit, had been so ravaged that part of it had been taken off official city maps. Reagan declared in 1980 that he had not seen anything like that since London after the Blitz. Now, in today's context, we can read the movie Wolfen as warning us about the dangers of gentrification. You know, you if you come in and raise all these old buildings, then the things that are using those old buildings as dens are going to come after our, after us in the city where we live, you know? Um, I mean, for the Wolfen, when you knock down those buildings that they're using, they're both losing their cover where they can, you know, hide and sleep and everything and take their victims. But those buildings are also serving as... Um, kind of like traps because homeless people will wander into them looking for a place to sleep as well and they become prey to the to the wolf and knocking down those buildings is what we would term progress probably because they're going to be replaced by even bigger buildings and all that stuff but what's the price of progress you know yeah they'll be replaced by buildings where people who are living there currently cannot afford to live there anymore and so they're just moving the problem rather than solving the problem. 
And I have to say this, uh, Christopher Vanderveer character that we are introduced to, he's the one that we see at this groundbreaking ceremony who is going to be building these new buildings here in the South Bronx. He's the first one that gets murdered in the movie. He goes to this windmill that's uh, down at Battery Park, he and his wife and his bodyguard, and the windmill has this dedication that it is a recreation of the first windmill that was in uh, New York, which we have to remember was once New Amsterdam. Vanderveer was from from Europe, and this is uh, you know a, a name that goes with New Amsterdam. There, again, there's this whole idea of this theme of you know coming over colonialism, pushing out the wolves, pushing out the the Indians, and Vanderveer. This is 1981 when this movie's coming out. I mean, he is pretty much in a few years, what we would call yuppie scum. And he is one of these guys who just is going to come in and try to rape New York and make as much money as possible. Kind of like some other real estate moguls that I can think of. And be president one day. So who got killed? The governor? Somebody bigger. Christopher Vanderveer. Megabucks. Heir to the fortune, maybe even the presidency. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. We that's how, that's how we read it in today's age, um, and yeah, it's, it it is no accident that they visit a colonial monument and get their throats ripped out. Of course, um, you know, my only issue with that scene, which it's really brilliant, that windmill, that circular windmill, it feels like it's a zoetrope almost. You know, it's it's a, maybe that it's a really cool thing, really cool cinematically, visually. I kind of regret for the story's sake. That that woman in the car, which I assume is Vanderveer's wife or his date for the night, whoever she is, that she's doing cocaine on the way to the visiting the monument or the park, Battery Park, because that kind of um, in horror movie, I don't know, dynamics signals to us that she's going to die, that the wolf and the, are on the side of the good, if that makes sense. Make Vanderveer a real estate mogul, of course, a pre-Trump, but um. I think take away the drugs and that kill hits a lot harder because then the wolf and get to be a little bit more monstrous. They are revenge killing. They did fix on Vanderveer at the dedication ceremony or whatever it was, you know, where he has that shovel. And so they see him as the one responsible for ruining their hunting territory, which is what, it, what this is about, of course. And so they think if they can take him out, then problem solved. But to me, he becomes a better, like, I don't know, avatar or symbol of this gentrification if his wife isn't doing drugs. Because that, to me, starts up a different dynamic. But, you know, also, if I remember correctly, the fourth person to die, that homeless, not, he may be homeless, I don't know, that guy who trades that jewel, that pendant for the drugs, the pill and a half, and he takes them and gets eaten out, out, in, the, out in the rubble. The fact that he's on drugs as well when he's eaten tells me that these wolfen are kind of taking drugs indirectly. Like if they're feeding on the people on the very liminal edges of society, people who are just, you know, popping pills and snorting lines, then the wolfen are getting coked up and doped up as well, you know? So that's the last thing you want are doped up werewolves. Yeah. I noticed in the script, there's a lot more kills, but almost everybody that seems to be killed is African-American, which is kind of weird and also uncomfortable. I mean, Vanderveer and his wife are white, but the bodyguard's black. The homeless person is black. Those are the ones that we see in the film. But then there's a lot more killings in the script, and one of them is just this 
black uh, rollerblader in the park, or roller skater, I should say. And it's just like, okay, well, he doesn't seem like he's on the fringes of society. And that's the whole thing is that, you know, it's kind of very never cry wolf, this whole idea of the wolf and only are going to eat, other than Vanderveer and his wife and the bodyguard, they're only going to eat the sick, the dying, the ones who are on the fringes of society who aren't going to be missed. And that's when they screw up, is when they hit somebody who isn't on the fringes of society. Now they finally have somebody looking into the case because it is somebody wealthy and powerful. And that's the whole thing that Whittington, the um, Gregory Hines character, is like, hey, Thousands of people go missing every single year, but it isn't until somebody important, quote-unquote, goes missing that there's any sort of investigation. Yeah, I like that, uh, as you were talking, Stephen, about uh, the shadow society, uh, you know, that you don't know what you're encroaching on when you uh, when you gentrify, when you knock these things down, that there is, some, there is life there, there is a hierarchy of life there that's functioning even if you can't see it. And later in the film, when Edward James Olmos talking about the wolf and says they might be gods that reading of it is great because then uh you know the reading the the uh the reviews and and articles about wolfen uh it was you know talked about as this very sort of lefty political movie but i i don't think it quite works you know totally that way if you're leaving it that uh, the answer really, what would be best for everyone is to just go ahead, continuing to sacrifice, you know, leave leave things the way they are and continue to sacrifice the vulnerable to these gods uh, who will leave the rest of us alone if we just, <laughs> you know, if we just let them feed on uh, feed on the vulnerable in our uh, society. So I, I thought that was. Uh, there was a weird a weird way that uh, the the articles I, I read didn't uh, didn't really address that when they they talked about its politics and 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 things. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. It's it's almost like the the King Kong dynamic has been engaged. You know, we if we leave one Fay Ray out there for the giant gorilla to eat, you know, then we can go on cooking in the village. You know, talking about the shadow society. Yeah, um, there's only four basic types of werewolf stories. The first one is I'm Bit, What Am I?, which is what well, that's pretty much American Werewolf in London. There's Someone Here's a Werewolf, which is what the wolfen is. It's it's usually when there's an investigator who is trying to find out what's doing this to these bodies. Like, you know, Silver Bullet works like that, too, I guess. There's the monster kind, which is uh, dog soldiers would be a monster one. And the way you can kind of identify a monster werewolf story is that you can replace werewolves with you know man dolphins or with giant snails and it's, it's the same story you know and it usually happens over a single night and it's kind of random and then you have the more kind of i don't know urban fantasy build like a secret history which is to say there have been werewolves among us alongside us for the whole time and that, that story the secret history one is probably the one that we're telling ourselves the most lately because it's all about acknowledging the other as a person which is something we need to be learning and doing of course but so wolfen to me is it's more or less someone here's a werewolf but it kind of in the movie version it has tinges of secret history because it's still secret at the end you know that they, they keep the wolfen secret i like this whole idea of there being two police forces that there's the police force that dewey wilson the albert finney character is on 
And then there's the police force that Rebecca Neff, the Diana Vernora character, is on. And that is something called executive surveillance systems, where it is a police squad, basically, just for the rich and powerful, and that they monitor all of these rich people and have eyes on them at all times. And that kind of comes out of this whole idea of the kidnapping of the rich. And I also like that Vanderveer's name, his code name is Romulus, which plays back to the whole Romulus and Remus, uh, you know, suckling at the teat of the, uh, the wolf for uh, Rome. And they use technology a lot more than the police. And they kind of show this dynamic to say, like, police are still using paper and pencils and whiteboards and all these things and using older methods, in quotes. And then EES or ESS is using high-powered imaging things, all of these uh, sensors. Uh, basically, it's like in a, uh, an infrared kind of uh, camera to show if people are lying or not, and they show that a couple times. And then that also ties in with the Wolfen, because we get this whole idea of Wolfen vision, which runs throughout this entire thing, which is this thermographic photography it's all being done um anytime there's a steady cam shot from uh garrett brown and we see kind of the the wolf in vision as we're uh chasing around the the people or observing that whole idea of the thermographic imaging of course and even especially because there's a sound that comes every single time they switch to this wolf in vision John McTiernan must have seen this movie because this is what Predator would be. Every time we, I hear that noise, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's the Predator noise. Compare Wolfen to Predator. This is like six years before Predator, right? But it's also, let's see, what is it? Six years after Jaws? Is that right? You know, Jaws had the, also had the the camera and the head of the killer, you know, which was real, really effective. Um, so I do feel like Wolfen kind of um, is a bridge between Jaws and Predator. But, you know, also we got to remember that 1980 was um, Friday the 13th in which... Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumpacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We have some slasher cam action with um, Pamela Voorhees, you know, getting to look through her eyes, which was like looking through Michael Myers' mask, I guess. But Attack the Block, it was wolfing something as well, because if I remember correctly, that had some kind of altered vision or enhanced vision. Is that right? Do you remember Attack the Block? If you're talking about the the poster art for Wolfen, the monsters in Attack the Block look like they came right out of that. They're just dark mm-hmm. shapes with, with teeth and eyes. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Although, you know what I'm talking about Friday the 13th, I really, I guess I really shouldn't factor in because Wolfen started shooting in late 79, which was also when Friday the 13th was shooting. And if I understand correctly, Wolfen was intended to come out in, um, Oh yeah. October 80. Had that happened, then 1981 wouldn't have been the huge werewolf explosion it was with Howling Wolfen and American Werewolf in London. But I think Wolfen at the box office, I mean, it suffered from the long arbitration, which led to its you know delay and everything. But it, it also suffered from trying to follow on the heels of the Howling and then American Werewolf coming along and just stomping everything. Like yeah, I think Howling was in April, Wolfen was July, and then American Werewolf in London was August. You know, so. The audience at that time must have just been in werewolf heaven. Can you imagine seeing all three of those titles on a marquee? Or not a, not a marquee, probably on a drive-in marquee, I guess. A, you know, a, a second-run kind of place. That would have been amazing, amazing. Well, hey, don't forget about Full Moon High from 1981 as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Adam Markin would probably want you to forget it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's cool, too, because I guess Howling... It was, it was the first of those those triple or the four four werewolf movies, but it was also the first of those that were a novel. It came in 77. Gary Brenner's novel was 77, and then Stryber's novel, The Wolfen, was 78. But um, John Landis's script for American Werewolf in London, I think, precedes both of them, because if I understand correctly, he wrote that like in the early 70s, really early 70s, after being on a production in Bulgaria and chanting a upon a type of burial he had never seen and that that triggered American Royal from London for him and he worked on that script all through the 70s so I guess American Royal from London was the last of the last of them to come out but the first of them to have a seed of reality the use of the uh, steady cam for the wolfen shots also reminds me of the shaky cam that Sam Raimi would use for the demon POVs when it came to the Evil Dead movies, especially Evil Dead 2, which I know came out many years after this. Oh, for sure, for sure. And then that was eight. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the first Evil Dead was 81. Is that right? But, you know, 81 also gave us My Bloody Valentine scanners, The Funhouse, Dead and Buried, and in 81, we were just coming off The Shining, The Changeling, Altered States, Prom Night. Friday 13th, The Fog. It was a wonderful time to be in horror, I think. The movie really likes to play with the audience, and it really it throws us so many different red herrings through this. I mean, the Eddie Olmos character and the, the Native American stuff could be considered a red herring, especially when he is pretending to shapeshift. And I do have to say that probably the first couple times I saw this movie, his performance is so compelling that when he pretends to shapeshift, there's moments where I'm like, he just changed it to a wolf. I I just saw it. I swear to God, he's changed it to a wolf. It was like that weird, like false memory kind of thing. And then watching it again, I'm like, okay, yeah, he's not changing into a wolf, but he's just giving this completely balls out, no pun intended performance where he's just going for it. And Edward James almost in this movie is just fantastic. He really he, he was. Totally. I swear, I thought there were special effects involved too. I, I watched it a couple of times this week, and even the first time I watched it this week, I thought, "Oh, that's interesting. There's special effects in here, even though he's not transformed." But no, he's <laughs> that's all just him, like uh, contorting his face and 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 doing the animal animalistic movements he's it's an amazing amazing moment yeah i completely agree it's a, a wonderful performance um you know when i saw this as a kid i thought 
I thought Edward James almost was Indian too. He became one of my heroes, you know, because he was mixing werewolves and and Indian stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess we got to remember that in '81, hit like Edward James almost's performance. It almost has to be in conversation with um, and I'm I'm blanking on the name, that guy who plays the lead in Prophecy. You remember him? His what's his name? His character name is John Hawks, maybe, and he's a um you know, an angry, angry Indian guy. He's kind of like an aim resistance leader, you know, kind of a few years after that had reached its, its height. So I, I feel like Edward James almost character is informed by that guy's performance in prophecy, whatever his name is. Armand Asante. Prophecy was, was explicitly, explicitly about, um, yeah, stewardship and, and, and mm-hmm. good citizenship and of, of in, on the earth and, and, environmental concerns um yeah i forgot they were so close together that's a mm-hmm. uh that's that's a great great double uh double whammy there yeah that's something again that i don't know how many people today i'm not trying to sound superior or anything but just i don't re- know how many people remember aim the 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 whole movement of uh, native american liberation which then becomes nam in this movie which i think is you know very purposefully right there with vietnam and um this is native american movement i think they're calling it and eddie holt is very much this leonard peltier character you know anything about nam as in viet as in native american movement broken elbow wounded knee very little they haven't been active in our area i doubt indians have anything to do with this eddie holt who's he the crazy horse of the 70s the only one of our local militants left alive who's not making money off a Levi commercials. I arrested him and uh, his friends before they uh, blew up Federal Hall. $24 deed was in there? He did four years for manslaughter. Killed an apple. What's an apple? A conservative Indian, red on the outside, white inside. He's been out about six months. Well, why would he kill Vanderveer? Maybe they walked Manhattan back. Vanderveer owned a hell of a chunk of it. Motivation's your department. Where is he now? On the steel. What's that? High steel. The Indians build most of the bridges and skyscrapers. The uh, Eddie Holt character is the first character that we actually see in this movie, the first human that we really see. And he's on top of this bridge and has a bull roarer. And if you know your Exorcist 2, you know that that is uh, a call to your gods. So when he's up there with this bull roarer, it's basically like he's bringing the wolfen out. So it's this other nice little red herring that we have. The other one that we get is that the bodyguard of Vandiver has this pentagram ring with a goat's head on it and he used to work for uh, Papa Doc Duvalier and has this whole possible Haitian voodoo connection so it's like you can go down that road as well or you can also go down the whole ESS road which is this is terrorism and you know this has to be a terrorist group which then also ties into the the NAM Native American movement because they were viewed as domestic terrorists or AIM was to, viewed as direct, domestic terrorists. And it cracks me up, you know, when Detective Wilson goes to the standard Indian bar that all the wigwam Indians, yeah, yeah, that all Indians that all Indians have to drink at. You know, everybody there is always so sullen and they never really want to look at you completely and it's always smoky and um, it cracks me up. But and you know, in this movie. 
I mean, I want to call it the standard Indian bar, but to tell you the truth, it's exposition, it's exposition bar, you know, because he just walks in and doesn't even say any words and everybody just lays down the secrets of the whole movie. And he's like, all right, I can leave now, you know. It's that time in the script. We have to give you all the information now. We're done playing around here. It's Wolfen. You might have thought it was something else. No, it's Wolfen. Yeah, they really just throw it out. But how beautiful. It works so well, though. Like, the audience is so primed to know what's going on. I'm, I just, I, I love that, that there's no other, no precursor dialogue, no, <laughs> no gestures, no anything. White man walks in looking very confused. All He's right. got the scratches on his face. Yeah. He's got his buddy's blood on him. We'll, okay, we'll let him know what's going on. It's remarkable to me that this is Gregory Hines' first movie role, because he is electric every single scene that he's in. I just love him, and then I love the chemistry that he has with the Tom Noonan character of Ferguson, and Noonan is just playing Ferguson like he's out in outer space someplace, and I just love when those two get together. Those are the best scenes in the movie for me. I completely I agree. about any Tom Noonan movie, <laughs> any movie he shows up for five minutes. Oh, those were the best scenes. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I remember correctly, at one point I looked Gregory Hines up because I also thought this was his first role. And I think it is his first like role of substance. Wasn't he also like, did, didn't do you do something in a Monty Python movie or something? It seems like he did. Well, he was in uh, history of the world part one. Maybe you're thinking talking about, you know, characters and roles. I always, every time I watch Wolfen, I imagine what the movie would have been like had Dustin Hoffman been cast as Detective Wilson. Because, you know, Hoffman was campaigning so hard. He wanted that role so bad. And Wadley was like, no, it's funny. Sorry, sorry, Dustin Hoffman, Kramer and Kramer, all the stuff you've done. Um, He would have brought a different weight to the story, I think. I'm curious how much Wadley had this precast. Because in the script, uh, when they go to the morgue, and I love Albert Finney just eating cookies at the morgue as he's looking at all these dead bodies, but there's the one morgue attendant who's just like, you shouldn't have been messing with that bitch. That's why you got shot. And that's Reginald Vell Johnson. And I don't know if in the movie they call him this, but in the script, he calls him Reggie. So I'm just like, did he already think Reginald Vell Johnson for that role? And then later when they go to a bar and he's having this conversation with this bartender and the bartender turns around and then he starts to sing, he's singing a Tom Waits song. And like the lyrics are in the script, a couple sections of lyrics. And I'm like, okay, he must have been thinking Tom Waits already for this role. And that's the one thing I really regret is that the Tom Waits section has is only on TV. And then it's weird. There's like a German version where you get more Tom Waits, the German TV version. And there's the American TV version where you get like very little Tom Waits. You might get in the background as the, 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 the soundtrack, but in the, the DVD or Blu-ray release of this movie, all Tom Waits has been completely excised from it. It's because of yeah, the song, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. It's because of the the song rights, right? I thought it was weird too, because he actually has him singing. Um, so it's what, uh, Jitterbug, yeah, in the movie, and then the the song lyrics that he has are from Smuggler's Waltz, a.k.a. Bronx Lullaby, which I thought was kind of a nice thing, too, since so much of this movie is set in the Bronx. You know, it's funny. It's funny that music or, or licensing issues are what's keeping that scene from being included, because that old Fox 
television series from the late 80s, Werewolf, if you all remember that. Oh, I um, sure do. I've got a friend who's covering that on a podcast right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, like the reason we don't have a proper DVD, DVD release of that is because there's a moment when a couple of characters in the, are in the parking lot of a club, and the music spilling out of the club is... I think it's Genesis, maybe. No, neither Genesis, Mike and the Mechanics, one of, you know, somebody from that group. And the DVD, whoever wants to do the, I mean, nobody can get the rights to that music. And for some reason, they can't excise the music. And I guess they don't have the original elements, so they can't just remove that layer of sound or something. I don't, I don't know what the technical, you know, impediments are, but because of like that 15 seconds of, uh, song that they can't get the rights to will never get werewolf on dvd or blu-ray which makes me sad i was talking about the red herring of the terrorism and i like that the the terrorist group that they end up coming up against that actually michael wadley the director makes a cameo as one of the members is Goddardameron, which they say is end of the world by wolves and i'm like well you kind of have to go a little bit farther than that and know that it's a translation of ragnarok and then remember fenir the wolf uh, eating odin so i'm like okay kind of the end of the world by wolves but i mean this the script it's almost too smart for people and i just can't believe it and then i also found it very interesting the script uh, it's 149 pages, so well over two hours with this script. And it has this whole prologue that all takes place in New Amsterdam with Vanderveer's, uh, you know, relative from long ago and him interacting with Native Americans and him interacting with, uh, Wolfen and stuff. So it's just like it kind of ties it together a little bit more, but I can see why they just chopped that and started it in present day. But this whole idea of, you know, how long the different cuts of the movie were and all these kind of things, which we'll hear about a lot more in the uh, interview section. Guys, you knew this thing had to have been at least two and a half hours long. So why were you so surprised when, and I imagine it was the rough cut came in at four hours and they edited it down to two hours and 25 minutes. Why were you so surprised that that was your cut? You know, you should have known it from the script stages. For sure, yeah, and I, I guess we'll never get that long cut either. If I understand, or maybe it's on the Blu-ray. I've, I've only got the DVD, but um, it cracks me up that that terrorist plot, the studio had excised it, you know, just for reasons of economy. But then after the Reagan assassination attempt and the attempt on the Pope, they thought this is actually kind of a hot button issue, so they they spliced it back in, you know. Yeah, and this whole thing, too, where it is Vanderveer's niece as part of the group and this kind of poor little rich girl kind of thing, I was so reminded of Tanya and the Symbionese Liberation Army. The one thing that I don't think is necessarily earned in this movie is the love relationship between Neff and um, Wilson. Mostly because I think a lot of the scenes where they are getting to know each other have been left on the cutting room floor. There's like a whole other thing. Once they're at that bar where Tom Waits is playing, like at least in the script version, Whittington shows up. They go out and they go on and continue to drink for a long time. There's a little bit of flirtation that happens. She basically 
I know this is 1981, but she has access to these, uh, the security system. So she goes home and basically Googles Dewey Wilson and finds out all this stuff about him through the, the ESS security system, which actually, now that I think about it, should stand for everything except shoes, but that's EES. It all started when I was approached to be spokesman for a multinational corporation called EES. Oh, the everything except shoes people. Right. She ends up, they end up having sex at one point, which I think is completely unearned. And then after a while, she just disappears from the movie and goes around and does her own thing. And there's a that whole section with Wilson and Whittington in the Bronx where they're hunting down the wolf. And she's not there. She's not there at all until one of the final scenes when he, oh, Wilson is really putting things together, sitting in Vanderveer's apartment and that, uh, or office, and that office, I mean, I mentioned Exorcist 2 before, but in the Exorcist 2 episode that we did, I talked about reflections, and that office is crazy with all those fragmented reflections of, from all of the uh, blinds in Vanderveer's office, and I think those shots, again, are really well filmed, and I love the fragmentation of Wilson's face in those. They are no, I can... off, uh, taking down the terrorist group, right? That, that's where she's at. Because when she's reintroduced, she has the wolf skin, the the coat from uh, that they took out of the the place. And I love that they're they're at the ESS. They're watching all the footage of the firefight and the burning building, and um, it, uh, and they're <laughs> talking about uh, we had to wait a couple hours before we let the news, you know, let the media know about this, and like. This is a firefight in the middle of a city of a populated area. There's blocks burning down, but it's ESS that has all the footage of it and all the knowledge of it. And they're, they, you know, they know they can't, they can't go that long, that long without, uh, without somebody saying, Hey, by the way, why is this block no longer there? Um, but they, they still control things enough that the, they can wait a few hours before letting the media know. Hey, we just uh, killed a bunch of people and uh, burned down a city block and, and things like that. It reminds me of the uh, oh, what, oh, God, the footage of the uh, the group in Philadelphia. What was the? Uh, they burned the the compound down right in the middle of the city, and oh, I can't remember. Jedediah is referring to the 13th of May 1985 burning of the MOVE headquarters in Philadelphia in which in 90 minutes nearly 500 heavily armed police officers fired 10,000 rounds of ammunition at the burning house. Anyway, I think that's where she's at and that's why she disappears for uh, for a portion of the movie. So they, they tied it together, but I agree the relationship in the book is you know, more, more, a little more development, uh, and, and is there earned a little better. Uh, yeah, it comes out of nowhere in here. I think, I think we just wanted, uh, you know, it's like, well, we've got this weird colorized, uh, textured shot of Albert Finney's ass <laughs> and we gotta, you know, we're not leaving that on the cutting room floor. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's actually Finney either. I think it, it, Something there's something body doubleish about that. It looks like to me, but um, but I I agree that um, I mean it's it's really kind of insulting. I mean that after the woman has sex with the protagonist, then she's just left out of the story. It's like she served her purpose, you know. Um, which I think uh, the novel, of course, does it better. Well, in the novel, they never actually have sex. 
And in the novel, she's the last man standing. She's the final girl, basically. And she's the one who takes care of shit, which also speaks to the idea of uh, the female wolf, that it is a, a female wolf leader at the very end. Like after the, the old father dies, that it's the mother who ends up really trying to save them. And that it's not just a matriarchal or patriarchal society. It's basically who's the best leader. And that's one thing I like about the wolf in politics. Yeah, for sure. And at the end, they instead of repeating the crime that the novel opens up with of killing the two police officers, these wolfen retreat. They they want to kill these police officers who just killed their brethren, their pack members, but they understand that they can't be exposing themselves like that, so they try to run away, which which I like a lot. But you know, I think the the movie or the the editor, I guess, is completely aware of the suddenness of that sex scene and the way it the way it hasn't been built up to. And I think that's why it elects to drop into the thermographic Wolfen vision. That's supposed to ease the transition from we hardly know each other to we're having sex, you know? Right. And they've got all the moans and all that with the uh, audio effects going on over that. I I could do without those, frankly. (laughs) One of the more disturbing parts of the movie. Well, as I'm watching this movie, I I can never talk about a James Horner score without picking on James Horner because he just recycled himself so much. And this was a year before Wrath of Khan came out, I believe. And just as the Wolfen are tracking the people, the same music that we have for Khan is the same music that we have for the Wolfen tracking. And I'm just like, oh my God, you really, you really needed to branch out a little more. Now I understand he only had like 12 days to write this music. But it was just like, okay, dude, you know, he was just really very um, conservative when it came to uh, the notes that he used. He was just like, I only have a certain number of notes, certain number of phrases, and I don't want to go beyond that. Wasn't some of it recycled for aliens a few years later, too? Seems like. Yeah. I can walk through a room and hear James Horner score on TV, and I'll be like, okay, that's James Horner, because it sounds almost exactly the same every single time. Yeah, that ba da 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 da. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's the Wolfen are looking, that's Khan is attacking, or that's the aliens are about to attack. You know, if, do I do I remember correctly from the credits? It says something about mega sound, like you know, that's, that's like Panavision or something. And I meant to look up what other movies are released in mega sound, but also I have no idea what mega sound is. Do y'all have any idea? Well, I know it was supposed to. The sound was supposed to really change when we got into that Wolf and Vision, and I can't remember. Somebody was saying like. Oh, where was I reading it? It was just like, well, I don't really recommend that people go after Dolby stuff, but this was really important that you hear this in a Dolby theater. And I'm just like, wow, that really dates you saying that, but okay. Um, what? Dolby. <laughs> you can't. Dolby. I mean, you can't. In Dublin, she means Dolby, all right? She means Dolby. You know, it's perfectly well what she means. You shan't recover from this one. 
But yeah, some sort of sound treatment that is supposed to make it very immersive. And apparently when they switched into those Predator shots, that the sound would change significantly. And I watched this with headphones on yesterday, and I was just like, okay, I can hear what you're doing. And I liked at the end, when Wilson was trying to put this together, that there were the little VO snatches, and one would come in on the right, the other on the left, and back and forth. But yeah, I'm not sure of the uh, the techniques of Mega Sound. You know, that attempt, the mega sound feel, trying to just fill the um, sensory input of the audience, of the listener, the viewer, reminds me of that scene in Kentucky Fried Movie. Do you remember Kentucky Fried Movie? The, what is that theater called where you have the usher behind you who is like massaging you and doing all that stuff <laughs> right. to you? <laughs> you are aware this motion picture is shown in Feel Around. Yes. And it's also a nice way that they end it, that they end this thing with Eddie again and his guys on top of the bridge at sunrise. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we freeze on that, and then that image kind of changes into that thermographic image again so it's like the wolfen are out here still life goes on and you're right as far as like finney or wilson smashing that model of the towers it's like okay they understand what that means i guess somehow he's going to try to prevent the building there i don't see wilson actually being able to do that but at least it saves his skin from being eaten by wolves at that point I think it, it ties in a little bit to what I think the central metaphor of the whole movie is, which is, um, you know, they talk about, uh, uh, Gregory Hines talks about the, uh, the French Revolution, you know, when he's looking at, uh, Miss Vanderveer's head is nearly off. By the way, that's my favorite sound moment of the, uh, I have two favorite sound <laughs> moments, you know, when her head falls off and they try to move the body. The careful with her. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That was hilarious, and yeah. uh, and then when he opens the beer in front of the uh, the microphone and it you know blows his ears <laughs> out, sounds like a gunshot. That was great. But when he's talking about the the beheadings uh, in the French Revolution, it was instantaneous. Instantaneous. You see the chicken run around with his head cut off, and nobody ever thinks about the head. During the French Revolution, when they chopped the heads off, they quick pick them up out of the basket and look them in the face. The most went out right away in shock. Every fifth head or so was alive, wide awake, eyes blinking, mouth trying to say something. Yeah, sure. Brain can live without oxygen for more than a minute. That's a long time, buddy boy. How'd you like to see your own body and know you're dead? And you combine that with Edward James Olmos saying, you know, you've lost your... 
uh, you've got your t- technology, but you've lost your um, uh, your senses. The graveyard of your fucking species. And it, this whole sort of surveillance state stuff, and the the technology, and the being able to like rise above. You know, the wolves never go up all that high, but there's constantly helicopters, and there's on top of the bridge, and things like that. All these like up high views of civilization and he's it's like they're saying you know the head's already off you this civilization is dead and now we're up here still we know it's dead but we can still see it you know and our our senses are cut off um but we've got this technology and we can see it and we can understand it maybe and these wolfen are going to be along around a lot longer than we are. They're going to survive and they're going to keep going. But you know, this is pretty much the end. This is the French Revolution. Your head's already off. You're dead. You just don't know it yet. And I think that's kind of the uh, nicely woven throughout the script in, in several several different places. Yeah, that's that's a that's a brilliant brilliant read. I've never heard that about Wolf, and I completely agree. Now that I, now that you say it, um. That's you should write that down somewhere so everybody can know it. Everybody will listen to this podcast, and that's the way everybody will know it, I guess. Um, but you know, talking about heights, I remember in the novel it was such a big thing, such a cool thing that the wolfen can climb the sides of these skyscrapers because their front paws are kind of a little bit prehensile. They can grab onto things. They almost have thumbs. But um, that that to me is a something that the movie doesn't land hard enough for the audience. Is in that wonderfully mirrored office at the end which we know from earlier when it was a daytime shot is really at the top of the world you have this view of the whole city it's it's ridiculously high right before that the wolfen were on the street and finney and neff retreat to that high office and then the wolfen are suddenly there and i think as an audience we forget that how we forget to put together the links of how did these wolves get to the 50th story or whatever and that i think that should have been just stultifyingly terrifying and instead we get the slow motion wolf coming through the sugar glass you know which is fun to watch and all but um i would have much rather been amazed and mystified at how can canines get this high without an elevator i feel like that was maybe maybe in the book because they were the wolf and i remember were stalking uh the the different characters and i that i was assuming that was why we got the wolf vision while they were having sex because the wolves are outside the apartment watching Mm -hmm. they followed albert finney over but Mm -hmm. but it it was not it was not explicit that uh this is how they're climbing or or anything like that but i wonder if that was part of uh i didn't read the script was that in the Uh, script was that that something that was left on the on the floor the whole idea of them stalking the cops was definitely in the script, just like in the book. But as far as how they got up to the top of the building, no. And like how they literally disappear, that was really wasn't addressed either. Yeah, they did. They disappear like Sean Connery in Entrapment. You know, they're just like suddenly gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, um, I think that 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 they the movie. Wadley doesn't mess with how they got up there because he's limited to using um, actual wolves. You know, he couldn't, he didn't have the CGI tech or the practical effects to 
to do these Wolfen as Stryber wrote them, which are vaguely canine, but they're kind of jacked up at the front like a hyena, and their faces are a little bit smushed in, their snouts aren't as long, their ears are in the wrong place for wolves, their eyes have a little bit too much knowledge or awareness in them. He couldn't do all that, so he had to use real wolves, which, as I'm sure you all know, because they were using real wolves, they also had sharpshooters all over the set when the wolves were in play, so that if one of the wolves broke character and became its true became his true self they could pop it you know the whole thing that you're talking about the idea of the world is looking at itself from the decapitated head i really i i love that idea and i like that it plays out too in the movie the whole idea of the uh the uh, severed hand and that we see the fingers still moving and that when dick o'neill the warren character um who's uh albert finney's boss when he gets his head cut off or chopped off that you can still see that moving and almost trying to talk though he should know better when he gets into a car that there's going to be a wolfen in the back seat i mean that is the oldest trick in the book monster in the back seat the oldest trick in the book <laughs> yeah wolfen are, are movie watchers I'm surprised they didn't have like one liner for him. Yeah, no one liners in this movie. No, uh, none of those action tropes, which is actually kind of refreshing. It kind of is, but it kind of. I think Wolfen is coming out of that tradition of like in the '70s. There was that classy horror thing, you know, coming out of Rosemary's Baby. We went to like Exorcist and The Omen. There was this idea of this kind of reserved horror that doesn't splash blood everywhere you know and doesn't have like the shower scene and all that and i think that's what wadley was going for he wanted to plug in to to that that line of development that tradition or whatever but um the bad thing was at the box office blood on the walls was what the audience was clamoring for you know so i think his attempt at a reserved horror or classy horror came probably about three years too late I think it's amazing just, you know, I, I didn't know any of this until I was reading reading up on it just, you know, this week that the what a troubled production it was and, mm-hmm. and what a mess it was coming from, you know, I read the book and uh uh and parts of the script and you know, I I see god it's so different this version of that version, there's, there's things left on the, the cutting room floor that, that make other parts of the movie that exist, not make much sense, uh, or feel jolting or things like that. But, but how well the movie works anyway, how, uh, you know, it's got that, that reserved, that classy, that, um, you know, maybe, um, what they would, today call it elevated horror you know it's got that uh that sort of meta element to it or, or or something that you know this movie is about something and it knows it's about something but it's also got fucking were, werewolf tradition basically and it and it it's scary as hell it's it's got everything um i can't believe it works as well as it does and i think maybe some of the things that are left out, some of the things that maybe Wadley wanted to explore and and maybe spell out more that he didn't get to, maybe that's a strength. And the you know the, the whoever um, was it uh, McDonald who, who came in to, to oh, finish Hancock. it, um, not John uh, D. McDonald, but John hey, D. Yeah, Hancock. John Hancock, right. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I'm a crime guy, so John McDonald is John D. McDonald to him. I almost wrote that in the notes, by the way. Did you? <laughs> well, he was coming into, uh, yeah. Well, let's just get some, let's get some wolves in it, and let's get some blood. And uh, you know, why, why do we got to mess around with all this stuff? 
the, the fact that you got both of those sensibilities working and neither of them getting what they want out of it, we still end up with this, this picture that satisfies on both fronts maybe better than uh, either one of them would had they gotten everything they wanted. And I, I just I think that's that's marvelous. I mean that that's probably uh, the editor. Um, I don't know who that is, but uh, it, you know it, it's somebody salvaging uh, a mess and and making making something pretty remarkable out of it. Because because I think it's a remarkable, stylish, beautiful, mystifying film. No, I agree. I, I think the editor, I think there were actually four editors assigned to this who they all did their different versions and cuts. And I think that you're right that they're the ones who pieced together this big mess. And you're probably right that had either the studio or Wadley had their own vision realized, it wouldn't have been as satisfying as it is. But, you know, like there, this is a very intentionally put together movie too. I mean, it feels, the product feels intentional because like last night when I watched it, I had a clock on it and at 40, at 43 minutes is the first time we see wolf and eyes like those red eyes at the top of the staircase in the church. And then at 72 minutes is when we see a kind of a silhouette of a wolf and up on a half wall or something. And it's Wilson who sees it. And then at 88 minutes, we get a wolf and in close up attacking. So we see it, this whole thing clearly. And then at hundred minutes, we see the pack. So we go from eyes to silhouette to an attack where we see it clearly. And then the pack, it's a wonderful, gradual segmented kind of, um, build, but this is, you know, the Wolfen is also playing with, um, it's having fun with werewolf tropes, like the full moon, which doesn't affect Wolfen at all, but, um, Wadley or somebody, somebody involved with this knew that the audience is expecting the moon to play a part. So then, Gregory, the Gregory Hines character, when he's up in the window doing his black moon over New York, whatever it is, whatever he <laughs> says there, um, he immediately dies because what's happened is are the Wolfen saw the moon, you know, and they they became what they are supposed to be. All right, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. First, we will hear from the author of The Wolfen, Whitley Strieber. Up next, we'll hear from producer Rupert Hitzig. Then we'll hear from co-director John D. Hancock. And finally, we'll hear the conclusion of the interview with composer Craig Saffin. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.tv, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to ovid.tv, that's ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. (laughs) 
It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios welcome to the interview portion of the show up first we are going to hear from author whitley streber i didn't realize until i was starting to do my research on you that you actually have a quite a history when it comes to movies and not just your own stuff being adapted for movies yeah that's to an extent, true, yeah. I went to the what was then called the London School of Film Technique, which is now the London Film School. And th- that was my initial, that was what I did initially. I was uh, briefly before that in the University of Texas Film Program. I've been interested in film essentially all my life. So it was inevitable that I would get involved in one way or another. Did I read right that Trevenian was actually one of your professors? He was. His name was Rod Whitaker. And we had, he later became Trevanian. He wasn't Trevanian when uh, uh, he lived there. He moved to Andorra or somewhere and became, he bought the Trevanian name, I believe, and uh, wrote some really good novels. He was a talented guy, Rod was. Yeah, I mean, the the Iger sanction is fantastic. Yeah, he drove around the campus in a big... Uh, Cadillac convertible, and he was cool. He was really a fun man. I, I'm glad I met him, and I learned an awful lot from him about not so much about the deeper film world of film, but about what popular film was and what popular culture is. The guy loved popular culture, and that's very clear from what you later see in his Trevanian books. Well, how did you decide that you wanted to get into film? Was that your first choice? 
was just crazy. I mean, <laughs> there's no other. There's anyone who tells you anything else is not telling you the truth. Uh, simple as that. No, I uh, when I was a kid, I just loved the movies. I really loved. I loved reading, and I loved going to the movies above all things in my life. And so, you know, from the very earliest days, I was just hooked on both things. And you know, so inevitably, I would become a novelist and be involved in movies. Well, tell me about the London School of Film and what your experience was like there. Well, the London School of Film is a bit more finished an operation now than it was then. It was uh, basically, it it's, was built, it still is actually, in an old uh, scene storage and painting, scene painting area for the Royal Opera House, circa the 18th century. Which means that this is a very tall building uh, with lots of stairs in it and absolutely massive amounts of brickwork and concrete because these scenes, scenery was extremely volatile. It could burn. And so it was a bit of an odd space to be having a school in. But my experience there was that it was exactly what it purported to be, a school of technique. In other words, they taught the use of cameras. Uh, they taught you basically how to be not a, an artist, but a, a technician. Uh, you know, in other words, it was a school where you would come out much more likely to be a cinematographer than a director, except with one difference. All the professors were much more interested, they were much more cineasts than they were technicians. So while they knew and could teach the technique, we spent an awful lot of time watching movies they thought were important. And at the time, the uh, National Film Institute, I guess it's probably still true, had an absolutely magnificent series going of old movies that you could go to all the time. They were just always there. And the, we used to crowd over there across the river, to across the Thames to the, the National Film Institute and watch movies by the hour. We talked movies, we thought movies, we lived movies. That's what it was like. What years were these? This would have been in 1968. Oh, wow. What a wonderful year for film, too. It was a great year for film. It was a great year to be a film student. It was also a great year to be in London. Oh, yeah, I bet. The, the whole swinging London scene must have been going on. It was to an extent, yeah. Well, what happens after you graduate? Where do you go from there? After I graduate, I come back to Texas. I tell my mother and father that I want to be a writer. They say, my mother says, well, if you want to be a writer, you should just write. My father says, if you don't have any contacts, you're not going to succeed. You need to move to New York and get to know editors and other writers. In those days, New York was an incredible concentration of writers and editors. It wasn't, the business was not nearly as spread out as it is now. In fact, New York is still a concentration of editors. In any case, I did that. And however, there was a, a little caveat. Dad, who had always been very generous in supporting me and giving me help that I needed, said, it's also time for you to strike out on your own. So I decided that I would get what I regarded as a sort of secondary job, something I could do and make money while also writing. And the first thing that I thought of started with an A, which was advertising. So I 
went down the list in the phone book and started with uh, N.W. Ayer and Company and BBD&O and then Benton and Bowles. And Benton and Bowles hired me as a media planner. I didn't want to get into creative work in advertising because I thought that would sap my creative spirit. And, you know, I, I, I didn't couldn't think that I could spend the day creating ads and then go home at night creating a novel. And I probably was right about that. I, I know a lot of people who did that, went that route. Then very few of them actually became novelists. So that was what I did. And then the Directors Guild training program came along. I applied for it. I heard about it and applied for it and got in. I was one of like six people that got in out of dozens upon dozens of applicants. And I ended up as a PA on a Director's Guild trainee on the Owl and the Pussycat with George Siegel and Barbara Streisand. And uh, I had the time of my life working on that picture. It was really fun. It was uh, the... uh, Line producer was a, a well-known movie character called George Justin, and Robert Greenhut was the, uh, I believe, the associate producer. Uh, he was he later became produced many Woody Allen movies. Ray Stark was the producer, so it was a really quite a lineup of of interesting fe- people, and uh, I had, as I said, a lot of fun. Uh, Harry Stradling Jr. showed up at one point, and uh, Ken Adam was the uh, set designer. It was just really a great crowd. Well, and Herbert Ross is no slouch or Buck Henry either. Did I not mention Herb? I'm so sorry. Herb, yeah, of course Herb was the the director. Uh, I'm glad Herb isn't here to give me that look. <laughs> no, he was, of course, I'm so, I, I somehow left him off the list, not intentionally, believe me. Um, in any case, and Barbara was fascinating to work with. Uh, George Siegel was cool. It was just a great experience. The other PAs were just like me, just completely wild, out-of-control kids who barely managed to keep their jobs um, because of all the cutting up we did. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. And plus, I had just gotten married. My wife, I was absolutely crazy about my wife. So I would work on the on the movie from, usually from about, oh, I don't know, whenever we'd start at some crazy hour, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, or and then uh, get home at 11 and spend the rest of the night wrapped up with her and then get up and do it all again. And being a young kid, I was never tired or in anything. I just had a wonderful time. It was marvelous. Did I read right that you worked on Diary of a Mad Housewife as well? Yeah. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But not so long. I didn't enjoy that uh, at all. Uh, that was a whole different ball of wax. The assistant director was a bit of a tyrant and I was having the advertising people calling me up and saying, Wait, why don't you come back? We we miss you. You know, we miss all the practical jokes and the fun and also the fact that you were the best guy we ever had in the media department. And so finally I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I can I'm gonna write a novel anyway. My I'm not I'm not going in the direction the DGA uh is set set which is basically to go de- up the assistant director ladder not into directing on that program that program was basically to create more assistant directors not to create directors but they had brought in people like me who basically were creatives not technical oriented technician oriented people and so i quit the program and went back into advertising when you first start writing, what are those stories like? Oh, oh, absolutely terrible. The first one, the first one, was a novel I wrote in college, where you know I'm the I have a very intense brain. The doctors think there's a lot more dopamine in it than there should be, and I, I was I've been high ever since I was born, and I've never I've never touched drugs of any kind, uh, and, and the reason is very simple. I walked into a room in 1970 where a lot of people were smoking grass and the room was thick with smoke. I was in the room for five minutes and I came out of that room as high as a kite. And, but I wasn't just high for half an hour. For the next week, I keep, kept seeing myself passing in the street. And I didn't feel high anymore, but then the next weekend we went to another party and I effusively complimented the hostess on the goldfish and her lampstands. And my wife, Anne, said, okay, honey, you're still high. We're going home. You know, you have an experience like that, and you think to yourself, this actually could be really dangerous. You, you better not go near this stuff. And I didn't. I never have. Anyway, the first novel was the first. That was Little Paradise was sort of written on one of these, one of these uh, natural highs that I am on. And... Uh, then the first no- really odd novel I really made an effort to sell was called Ginger. It was written in London. And then I wrote, I think, six or seven more novels. And not that they were all bad. Some of them were quite good, I think. And Anne did, too. And Anne, Anne was so determined to make this happen, to make, get me to be a writer, that she actually went back to school and got an M.A. in English Literature so that she she could edit me. I mean, she was a really, really devoted wife. And uh, so, you know, we were doing this together. And when she said something was good, it probably was. I had a lot of trouble getting an agent. I wrote, I, I wrote one book called The Searchlight Horror, where as soon as a character... I mean, I can't believe I did this, but it, I knew nothing at the time. I'd read so much, and yet... Had absorbed so little, it astonishes me. In any case, I wrote this novel, The Searchlight Horror, about a town which is beset by accidents. And every time you get into a character, and the characters were good, they're well drawn, they make you want to know more about them, they get killed off. And so I sent it to an agent, Candida Donatio, 
And her associate, Joe Brown, telephoned me and said, Mr. Strieber, we would like you to come over and discuss your novel. And I said to Annie, we are in like Flynn. Candida is the hottest agent in town. Joe is her second in command. We are going to, this is going to work. And Annie was a little sort of perplexed. She didn't say anything, but I could see in her face that she was wondering what was going on. Anyway, I go over to the guy's office. And he sits me down and he says, I would like to tell you to your face that this is the most annoying book I have ever read in my life. <laughs> God. And so I thought to myself, well, this is actually not going to work after all. <laughs> I went home and I said, I told Ann what had happened. And she said, Whitley, I didn't want to tell you that because I wasn't sure it was true. I've never seen anything like that book. Don't do it again because you're so good at building characters and you can't just kill them off just just when people are getting interested in them and then build more and do it all through a whole novel. It's infuriating. I said, yeah, apparently that's the case. So then I kept on. I wrote another novel uh, called Catherine's Bounty, which is probably the best of the novels I wrote in those days. And I had sent a previous novel to an agent. I won't name her. I don't think she's with us anymore, but in any case, I won't name her. And uh, she had sent a letter back saying it was very promising and that she would love to see more. And I sent her Catherine's Bounty. And nothing happened, and nothing happened, and nothing happened. I wrote her a letter. There was no email in those days. And I didn't dare call an agent. So I get no reply. One Saturday morning, there's a knock on the door. And it's a postman. Not in uniform. He introduces himself. And there he has my manuscript all neatly tied up in a bundle. And he said, I just wanted to bring this to you because I know it must be important to you. I found it without even an envelope in the bottom of a mailbox. And I want to tell you also, my wife and I read it and we loved it. It's a really fine novel. And I read a lot of novels. And then he proceeded to reel off a lot of famous novelists who he, was, who he had read. And so that postman and his wife were my first, my first public. Uh, but I was afraid to send out Catherine's Bounty again because I thought maybe there was something about it that it was infuriating agents as much as the uh, searchlight horror had. And she hadn't even put it in an envelope. The only reason I got it back was that my address and name and address were on the, on the title page. But that was such a nice thing that guy did. There's a lot of good people... So many good people in the world. We, it's so easy to forget that. We spend all of our time kvetching about all the horrors. And there's plenty of horrors, God knows. But, you know, there's a good person for every... There are ten good people for every one bad, in my opinion, at least. And he was one of them. Have you ever thought about going back through some of those trunk novels and seeing if there's any life left in them? Oh, gosh. We all have trunk novels. And we all leave them in the trunk. And we all think to ourselves... One day when I have passed on and everybody has finally realized just how good I was, the trunk novels will be brought out and published. What will happen is the trunk novels will be eventually inherited by the kids who will say, you know, this storage space costs $40 a month. We need to just toss this stuff. That's going to be their fate. Uh, and you're resigned to that, huh? I'm resigned to it because most of them probably deserve it. <laughs> Catherine's Bounty probably doesn't deserve that, and maybe I will do something with that someday, yes. But the others are 
our struggle. They're all there's an enormous amount of struggle in writing novels. It's really hard. It's like script writing. It's in in many ways it's it's different but 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 equally hard. And you know, a script is so amorphous. There's and and then I've been I've worked on a lot of scripts and there are so many different players. You know, you get everything all done and uh, all finished and Speaking of Herb Ross, there's a great film involving scripts called The Last of Sheila, which anyone who is interested in the film business should certainly see. There has a priceless moment in it when a Sue Mingers-like agent is presented with this script, huge, thick thing that these guys have obviously been working on their entire lives by these hands coming with shot cuffs and it's obviously some fancy assistant. And she just waves her hand and says, "Get, get rid of it, it's a piece of dreck. And it goes away again. That's their moment in Hollywood. Hollywood has a lot of moments like that, many, many more than the other moment when the voice on the phone says, this is Hollywood calling. We love your work. You know, in fact, I pitched, speaking of Hollywood, I pitched a uh, series for kids one time. I pitched a few series in my life. I haven't had anything, nothing really took off except... uh, Alien Hunter, which uh, Gail Ann Hurd bought, and Natalie Chaidez, uh show run, show ran. Uh, but anyway, I went in. Ann and I had this idea go- called Templar Knights, and we pitched it. And the guy sits there and he says, "You know, that's the best pitch I've ever heard. That is the most exciting idea I believe I have ever heard in this office. And I've been in this company for 15 years." And I said, "Oh, great! Are you going to buy it?" He said, "Oh, no." I said, well, no, why not? He said, it's a little bit out of our age group. <laughs> and I thought, is he joking? You know, it's sort of like, you know, remember that in um, Larry David's show? Yeah. He has an episode where he goes into an executive and sits down to talk to him about the show. And the executive immediately says, never watch it, not a fan. And Larry David gets pissed off and leaves. And the guy is left sitting there thinking to himself, well, I tried to intimidate Larry David, and he walked out the door. Only the difference was this. Larry David's a multimillionaire. When we walked out of that door, we had about $1,500 in the bank. So it was a little longer walk. Well, I want to know where the idea for Wolfen came from. I think this is where it came from. It's one of these things, a lot of things can come from a lot of different places and you know, you don't, you don't, you can't ever really put it together. But I think it came from basically two places. First was we lived at the time on Central Park West on, on 80, West Eighty uh, Fifth Street, right off Seventy West Seventy Fifth Street, excuse me, right off Central Park West in a brownstone. Now, lest you think that oh, what an elegant New York life they were living. This was a seven-flight walk-up to an apartment. <laughs> so small that it came with a tailor. <laughs> in any case, that's where we were, hanging on. And um, I, I was making at that time about $175 a week in the advertising business. So, And Annie, was she was terribly brilliant, and she couldn't help but correct people and tell people what she thought they ought to do. So she was often between jobs. In fact, she was practically always between jobs. The only job she had that lasted was being married to me, and I loved her for it. She was, she would always speak her mind. She couldn't help it. In any case, so we were there, 
And one night, in the middle of the night, I started, I, I lived by night, and I always have. And even when I was a little boy, I was always the only person awake in the house and the only person, you know, I was getting getting up and getting my own breakfast at 5.30 in the morning when I was nine. And I would have been doing it earlier, but I wasn't tall enough to reach the stove. In any case, uh, I get up and I take a walk. And I decide, you know, everyone says how scary Central Park is. I'm looking at it. It's there and sort of over the wall. is sort of little fog hanging. It's just beautiful. I thought, any mugger. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Who is going to be there now is going to be starving to death. That's not where they have to be. They have to be where there are people. So I decided I'm going to take a walk in Central Park and see what happens. So I went out, and I went as really quiet and dark and wonderful. And I'm walking along, and I get to the, ironically, to the literary walk. And so I'm walking down the literary walk, and I begin to become aware of the fact that I am not actually alone. And I think, you fool, you romantic idiot. Of course, it's filled with crazed perverts and madmen. And, but it's not that. There are dogs shadowing me just outside the tree line on both sides of the literary walk. A lot of dogs, because they don't see you, and they're feral dogs. And they're looking at me, and I think to myself, it is real clear to me one thing. These guys have not had enough supper, and I am here, and I don't have any fur, and my teeth are crappy. So <laughs> I better get out of here. And I sped up and got the hell out of there and never went back at night because uh, the dogs come out at night. At least they did then. Everything is so much more controlled now. I'm sure they've all been carefully taken to shelters and they're no longer. It's not wild anymore anywhere in the world, much less in Central Park. Anyway, that didn't plant a seed. But then I read in some paper somewhere a story about koi dogs which were dogs that are mixtures of dog and coyote that are supposedly so smart and so people savvy that they can live among us and you never even see them. And I put the two things together and the idea for the wolf and began to germinate. That's how it started. And how do you decide I'm going to make this a police procedural mixed with the POV of the wolfen? I don't know. It just came out that way. I guess, you know, after I did a couple of chapters and showed them to Anne, she said in this tone of voice, this is actually good. <laughs> I said, what's good about it? She said, well, first of all, the characters are good and the wolfen are wonderful. You've got to write more of the wolf. The wolfen have got to be a big part of this. And 
I thought, hey, she's serious. This is good. And I finished it and I sent it to another agent who gave it to Jim Landis at William Morrow and Company. Jim loved it. He bought it for $175,000. I left the advertising business, unfortunately leaving behind a very nice raincoat, which I never saw again, and uh, became a novelist full-time. That's how I began. That's fantastic. And what did that do for you? How did that change your life? Well, first of all, we lost all of our friends because they were contorted with jealousy. There's no other way to describe it. We just became isolated. I went up to Elaine's a couple of times, and I assumed that, you know, this is after the book had been published, that a horror novelist would not be welcome there. But I met a few people, and uh, we didn't go often. You know where we did go a lot was a very, very cool place called Teresa's Little Secret in the 40s on Lex in the in the um, uh, basement of one of those brownstones. And you couldn't go, the little secret had no, it was, it was like Pinocchio, that, uh, th- that was a speakeasy that had become a restaurant after Prohibition. And to go to Pinocchio, you had to notice a little statue, a little puppet of Pinocchio in the window. And then you went in and there was this very lovely restaurant in there. It wasn't, wasn't pretty, but the food was lovely. That's what put that way. Okay, so to get to Teresa's, you had to know about it. And I found out about it from a writer. I think it might have been from, maybe the name will come to me in a minute. It's been a long time. This is, this is uh, the early 80s, I guess. We were told about Teresa's and how to get in, which is you went to the certain address. You went downstairs into the, into the, under the brownstone. You would find that the door of the basement was open. You open the door, and there would be books stacked to the ceiling on both sides, everywhere, and a kind of path through them with a couple of light bulbs. And you went down that path, and it opened out into a wonderful, cute, tiny three or four table restaurant, which was run by Therese, who was a fabulous raconteur and would sit there telling stories while her friend Queenie who was very ancient and had her own ideas about even what food was, let alone how to prepare it, uh, would make the food and occasionally actually succeed at that, but not often. And then in the, e- in the summer evenings, there was a little garden out there, and you could sit in the garden, and all kinds of incredible people came there. We met the king and queen of Spain there. It was just so cool, so cool. So that was more our hangout than any other place. And, you know, no one sort of knew who we were. We were kind of unknowns. And, but that didn't really matter at Teresa's. If you were there, you had to belong there. It was that kind of place. You couldn't, you couldn't just walk in. You had to have been introduced. So uh, that, was, that was where I met more people. And um, I never got much into the literary community in in New York, uh, not not the upper level of it, the Saul Bellow kite and uh, level of it, but I and John Updike. I met John Updike once or twice, but I got to know Peter Straub very well, and I had a couple of sort of intersections with Stephen King because the three of us shared the same agent, Kirby McCauley, and um, I got to know a lot of people in the horror field through Kirby and 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 Peter and. Um, I play a, in those days, I'm now very 
I'm 74 years old, so I don't play practical jokes anymore because I'm too vulnerable to retaliation at my age. In any case, I played a lot of pranks in those days. And one of the best pranks I ever played, my wife was an expert at sussing out pranks. She was not, did not like to be pranked, which, of course, makes it more fun. And uh, she, But she was brilliant, and she was really good at figuring them out. And I never got her except one time. At this point, we were living in Brooklyn Heights, uh, and we had a in a, another brownstone, and it was overlooked. It was down the street were two things, Norman Mailer's place uh, and the New York Harbor. It was on a street called Grace Court. We were walking home one evening, and there was a huge fireworks display going on, of course, because it was the 4th of July. And for some reason, Anne did not remember this. And she said, what in the world is all all those fireworks for? And I said, it's Wisconsin Cheese Week. She said, Wisconsin Cheese Week? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How can they possibly spend all that money on fireworks in New York City? Wisconsin cheese is horrible anyway. Who would eat it? I said, well, a lot of people like it. Wisconsin cheese is famous. It's famous for its cheese. She said, well, it's stupid. And we went on into the apartment and forgot about it. About a, a couple of weeks later, we were at the Straub's. And and says, did you all see that crazy fireworks display a couple of weeks ago for Wisconsin Cheese Week? And Susan Straub looks at her and says, uh, we saw the 4th of July fireworks. And her face and face immediately darkens, and she looks at me, and I realize, uh-oh. Now, Anne was a person who, when crossed, felt the appropriate thing to do to the novelist was to hit him in the head with a book, which happened fairly frequently, because I am an annoying person. I try not to be, but it doesn't. that never works. Anyway, a couple of seconds later, wham, I got hit in the head with a, with a book, but it's one of Peter's novels. And as you know, these novels are not thin. So I'm like reeling. And Peter and Susan sort of look at us, and then they kind of go on because, you know, it's a, some kind of a spat between the other couple. Who knows what's going on? You don't want to go there. And the evening continues as I come out of my near collapse. Uh, so, that, you know, I knew a few horror novels. I doubt if they remember that story. It's a cute story, and I've never forgotten it, of course, because I'm the one who got it by the book. But anyway... It was a wonderful time, all of those times. I have had a, an absolutely fascinating life. There's no question whatsoever about that. And, you know, Annie said, I signed on for an inst- interesting life, and I hit the jackpot. And she sure did. She surely did. Was there a lot of pressure on you after the success of Wolfen to do a follow-up? No. I, I never even, no one even brought the idea up. Uh, they should have, but they didn't. They certainly should have, but it, you know, Jim wasn't a Landis wasn't really a sort of commercial. He was more interested in literary fiction, and and uh, uh, his most commercial client was Morris West, and um, our author was Morris West, and it just never. I guess it never crossed his mind. It certainly didn't cross mine. So I got involved with my vampire novel, with The Hunger. I got interested in the idea of a female vampire. Because I was looking around, there were a lot of vampire books around then in those days, and they were all men. And I said to Annie, you know, wouldn't this be an empowering thing if there were also women in this kind of space? And she said, well, I don't know. Would it be a good vampire? I said, of course not. It would be 
a very interesting vampire, though. And she said, well, then maybe you should give it a try. And I started writing, and here comes Miriam Blaylock into my life. And she is very, very cool. She's really someone I was terribly interested in getting to know better. And she was dangerous, too. Annie, Annie was strict, but she was not dangerous. She wouldn't hurt a flea. And I just was, became fascinated with the idea of this, this feminine energy that, that is deeply empowered enough to actually, if it wishes, be dangerous. And that's where it started. That's where the hunger started. It, took, it went through like 10 drafts. This was before computers and before word processing. And so draft after draft had to be hand-typed and rewritten and hand-typed and rewritten. Jim, for reasons that may or may not have had anything to do with the hunger, had a nervous breakdown and ended up out of commission for six months. I, 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 or, or got sick or something. I don't know exactly what happened to him. But, and then another editor came along, a very nice guy, and, uh, and we eventually got it finished. And it's become a classic, actually. That was one thing I really liked about the Wolfen was the Becky Neff character and that she is the one who's left standing at the end of the book. I am interested in, in women's power. I think that the, uh, the, the, male or, uh, the male-ordered world has shot its bolt. I think it shot its bolt in the 20th century when basically the beginning of World War I, a bunch of old men sent a whole lot of young men out to die. They murdered them. They murdered them not because of the intricacies of power politics between countries. That's what it looks like on the surface. They murdered them because there is a deep instinctive desire that comes in the old lion to preserve himself. The old lion if he can. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. We'll kill the young lion until he himself becomes so old that the young lion finally kills him. You talked about how you've written screenplays in the past, and I was curious, did you write a screenplay for Wolfen when that was optioned? It was optioned. I wrote a screenplay for it. It was optioned, and it, it was for a long time until Michael Wadley, the director, came along and tossed it out, most of it, and got another writer, something that in those days I innocently did not even know could happen. But Alan King and Rupert Hitzig did, of course, and they were they were trying to make do Hollywood, and they would have succeeded if The Wolfen had been a bigger hit. But in any case, 
Yes, I wrote a screenplay for The Wolfen, and I thought it was a pretty good screenplay. And in fact, the best parts of it are in the current book, in the current screenplay. How did you handle the actual Wolfen themselves? Because I know that that could be a really tricky thing. I did it mostly POV in my in my script. In those days, remember, we did not have CGI, and if you'd tried to do it with animation, it would have failed. You had to have real wolves or or POV, and that was and I I thought up the idea of doing their POV with, and this turned out to be a fascinating catastrophe uh, with um, temperature sensitive film, and that idea lasted into the making of the movie. Unfortunately, it never crossed anybody's mind that temperature-sensitive film was also flammable because people had been working with non-flammable film since you know the 20s, and it was sort of not an issue anymore. And one night, the editing room exploded, and all of the it was actually an editing um, editing trailer on the Sony lot. Fortunately, it was not in indoors anywhere. And all of the temperature-sensitive film burned up right before the film was due to be sent to be finished and sent to distributors. So Rupert ended up with an Ariflex racing around doing all kinds of POV shots because we had no other way to do anything else. We had to get the film finished. And it actually worked well. You never know it when you look at the film unless you knew what it had been before. And um, so, you know, that was one of the things that happened. But... Uh, on the whole, I think the film's pretty successful. I think that, I, you know, Michael never made another film. I was, last I heard of Michael, he was living in uh, Thailand. I was a sort of Dharma bum, um, or, or maybe he was in the antiques trade or something. I don't know exactly what happened to him. Uh, Rupert drifted out of the business. Alan died. And, you know, that's Hollywood. They don't call it Hollywood because it's fun. Well, I was curious because I know that production got very contentious towards the end. And how involved in that were you? Or were you just kind of safely ensconced in the literary world? I was writing The Hunger for the most part while that was being done. I went down to the set once or twice when they were in Manhattan and um, saw a few fascinating things. Uh, like in those days, Albert Finney drank a fair amount. I mean, it's not a secret. He drank more than a fair amount. He drank, in fact, more than anyone I've ever known. And, you know, when you see someone with a pint of four roses and, and they're working, you know that person's serious, seriously into drinking. And so um, I was there, and I went up to, I believe, to Michael or Rupert, I don't know which one, and said, Finney was sitting on a bench waiting to go into his shot. And I said, you know, I'd love to talk to Finney, say hello. And they said, sure, go right ahead. I walked over, introduced myself. He sits there just staring off into space. I ask him a couple of things, tell him I'm glad he's in the picture. He sits there staring off into space. And I go back. You could, you know, he smelled, he smelled like a distillery. I said, you know, he's dead drunk. And they, I think it might have been Rupert. In fact, I'm sure it was. And Rupert says, just watch, it's fascinating. So they call him into the shot. And I think to myself, he can't shoot. He can't even walk. He gets up, stands up like a robot, robotically walks into the shot, does a perfect take, another perfect take, a third perfect take, comes out. As soon as he's out of the shot, he turns into a robot again, goes, sits down on the bench, and takes out the four roses and chug-a-lugs some. 
And I thought, my God, the Albert Finney is drunk, but the character is sober. It was so fascinating. I, you know, maybe I'm telling a story on him. I hope it doesn't piss him off, but that's okay. Uh, oh, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. I was just going to say, wherever he is, if it pisses him off, there's not a lot he can do about it. In any case, in any case, he was a great man and a fabulous actor, and that was a magnificently fascinating experience, I have to tell you. I never saw anything like it before or since. Well, what was it like for you when you see the movie finally show on the big screen? I was shaking in my shoes because I knew what had happened to all of that footage, and I was thinking, maybe it's a catastrophe. And it was actually a pretty good movie. There were things about it I didn't care for very much, and things about it that were kind of unfinished. You know, Michael, Michael tried, to, tried for a kind of a bigger movie than, it, than you could really make with that material in those days, because we did not have the kind of special effects then that we do now. And, you know, he, he, he had some very huge, very expensive shots, like from the top of the Brooklyn Bridge and stuff that didn't actually matter that much in the movie, but absorbed a lot of the budget. So, and it was, you know, I think, I, I'm not going to say it's the greatest movie since sliced bread, but it's a lot of fun, and the Wolfen are effective. And so is Albert Finney. So is Diane Venora, in fact. She's an actress who should have had a lot more happen to her than, than did. Well, and then the supporting players, I mean, Tom Noonan and Gregory Hines are just fantastic together. You know, when I saw, I, I will tell you this, when I saw the movie and I saw Gregory Hines get killed off, I said to Alan and Rupert, I said, you never should have killed that guy off. That guy is going to be a star. And that was correct. Have they ever talked about uh, possibly doing it again? Oh, hundreds of times. It may have been even optioned a few times. I don't remember. But um, nobody's ever actually done it. And you know what I think they ought to do is, you know, Hollywood being Hollywood, they look at the movie, not at the book, now that there's a movie. I mean, once there's a movie, thank God, we don't have to read anything anymore. We can just look at the movie. Um, so they look at the movie and they think, ah, we don't see how this would work as a remake. We don't see how to do this. And then they look at the numbers, and the numbers were mediocre. So, you know, there's nothing, there's no there there. The book was a marvelous bestseller. And what they should do is go to the book and take the book and make a new movie based on the book. And if they did that, they would have a very cool movie. But nobody, and that, that never occurs to anyone. What are you working on now? Uh-oh. Now you get into forbidden territory because you get into the stuff people don't want to talk about, which is the communion material and the close encounter of the third kind that completely discredited me and made me a national joke, the rectal probe man. But that's what I'm working on now as a follow-on to that book, because it's all real, first of all. Nobody understands it at all. It's beginning to come out a little bit. The Navy finally admitted that UFOs are genuine unknowns after those videos came out in 2017. But there is a lot more back there. There are people working on the materials. There are, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and that's what the book is essentially about. Because I have been, had the privilege and good fortune to meet a lot of the people who really do work on this stuff behind the wall of classification. And I have the ability and the permission to write about what I have found in limits, because there's stuff that's, there's basically stuff that's classified because of issues about 
national security. That I can't write about. But there's a lot of stuff about things like uh, the bleeding of technology into the public space for metallurgy especially uh, that, is, that, that we can talk about. And it's fabulous. I know a man who has dozens of inventions to his name. And talk about lucky. It's like winning the lottery because he works on these materials and he uses what he learns in doing things like making new types of super hard metals and stuff that we then use in medical applications. And so, so forth. this is all coming out. It's, it's going to get to the point soon where we're going to figure out, A, they're a total mystery. We don't know whether they're aliens or not. B, they've left a lot of cool stuff around over the years, and we're making use of it. And C, this is all fascinating, and there's no real reason to hide it anymore. So is the best place for people to keep up with you uh, unknowncountry.com? Unknowncountry.com. That's my website. Mr. Strieber, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Up next, we're going to hear from producer Rupert Hitzig. Well, I'm very curious how you got involved in the project. Uh, I got involved because I was producing films. I was partners with Alan King. We had a company called King Hitzig. And one day, my brilliant wife, who is a literary agent at William Morris, sent me the galleys for a book by Whitley Strieber called Wolfen. And I said, wow, this could be a really extraordinary movie since I'm a New Yorker and this is a New York story. So I optioned it, and then I started putting it together in the traditional way. And along the course of the way, I attracted the interest of Mike Medavoy at Orion, and I had other relationships. I made other movies, and uh, we had a relationship so that I could get access to him, because that's the whole big deal in our business is access. He liked the story, the galleys, and uh, he backed me up. And then he said, I think this is great. Let's get a screenplay. So I hired a friend of mine who had written an incredible movie and came from West Virginia. And uh, I hired him to write this first draft. His name is David Ayer. And he wrote a wonderful screenplay. And then I went about that same process. Um, Mike Metavoy said, yes, I'm interested in making this movie. And so he said, well, we need a director. We went through choices uh, the way we worked at that particular point because United Artists was always very free with their producers. They gave them a lot of options and a lot of choices. So I came in with a couple of ideas for directors. And one day, uh, neither of them worked out or were approved by Mike. One was a comedy director named Bill Persky, and I thought he would be great. And then, of course, since I wanted to be a director, I thought I would put myself forward. And he said, no, we want an accomplished director. But then he said, but there's an interesting guy that I'd like to find a feature for. His name is Michael Wadley. And I said, well, what has he done before? He said, well, he did a documentary called Wolfen. I said, well, Jesus, Mike, I've done a lot of documentaries. Well, I can't have a shot. He says, no, this is a special guy. We think this guy can make a great feature. I said, fine with me. I just want to get it made. We need a rewrite on the screenplay. And there's this guy we just worked with on the hand by the name of 
Oliver Stone, and maybe he should direct it. So, well, Oliver Stone had never directed a film. Now, I, I then flew to Rome with Wadley to have my, uh, no, not to direct. I'm sorry. I'm, that's, a, that's wrong. Wadley Wadley's already attached. So Wadley and I flew to Rome and met with Oliver Stone for five days. And Wadley wanted to do this adaptation of the book, which was away from the straight narrative and create this allegory about shape-shifting and uh, world uh, world uh, economic and, and environmental problems and the spying of the deep state and all the rest of the things that were rattling about in Michael Wadley's expansive brain. And he had this other approach. So we, we went over to... Uh, to Oliver and sat in, in the Excelsior Hotel and <laughs> wildly tried to discuss this other idea about this character being a shapeshifter and changing his identity and becoming a wolf. And Oliver Stones was at that point in his life drinking a lot. And I had a great room at the Excelsior and I had those little mini bottles. And by the time we finished that meeting, all the mini bottles, no matter what bourbon, scotch, gin, anything. It was all gone. The whole tray had been an all-day meeting. And uh, Oliver Stone says, you got to be out of your mind. This guy's crazy. So I said, that means you're not going to write the screenplay. No, I don't think so. Not for his vision. So that's when I came back and got David Ayer. I'm sorry. I went to see Oliver Stone before David Ayer. And I had this relationship with David because he'd written a film called me for, for me for Burt Lancaster called Catalan Little Bridges. So I approached after, when Oliver Stone passed on it, I went to David Ayer and said, can you do the screenplay? And I got it approved by Mike, and, and David wrote the screenplay. It was after the Rome trip. I'm sorry, I screwed up. Because we were looking for Oliver Stone to write it. And then he was just so way apart from, from Wadley's unique approach to this straight novel about wolves in New York that uh, I kind of liked Wadley's approach and uh, backed him up and took it to Wadley uh, to Air and said let's let's uh, let's go with him and let's see if we can write this script to his vision and that's what happened and then that attracted Albert Finney and that was a go picture then with Wadley the first time director after I approved him after a rather interesting first meeting at the Beverly Hills Hotel uh, in which he completely conned me uh, into thinking about me and why I was important. So he never talked about himself. So I was so impressed and so flattered by his interest in me that I said, of course, this guy's great. So I approved him. And Mike, my, that we, we drove out to Orion that day at 5 o'clock. He approved and we were greenlit. So we started to put it together. So why Albert Finney? That seems like an unusual choice. Very unusual. It was Wadley's choice. I still don't remember how he got to Albert Finney. It wasn't through me. It was somehow he got a hold of it. Maybe through William Morris. I really can't remember. But we made another offer, and I'm trying to think of who it was first, and they turned us down. But it then ended up with Albert, and he was thrilled, and I was thrilled because I thought he was such a great actor. I had read once that Dustin Hoffman was really interested in the role. Yeah, he was. But Wadley had his own little way to go. If anybody else made a suggestion, then he would not take it. He wanted to be his own man. In every every sense, never he never never got off that. He he if any other producer ever wants to work with him, he's a he's a so you better hold on to your panties, that's all I can tell you. What was the actual shoot like? How much uh, involvement did you have in that? Tremendous amount. 
I mean, I am an active online filmmaker. I've directed five pictures now. And I was there to support him. I never undermined him. I was there to support him. I was there every day in every way. And sitting in the South Bronx sometimes with Finney drinking brandy till four in the morning and they never got a call because Wobbly was too disorganized. So I was on the set every day and approved every shot and, and uh, was probably a pain in the ass as a producer. And uh, at the beginning, I liked what he was doing. In fact, I remember, this is typical of Wadley, I told him, because I am a director and because I've worked with actors a lot longer than Wadley, and I wanted to help him, I said, I will meet you at your apartment on, I believe it was McDougal Street in the village, at five in the morning on the first day of shooting, and we'll drive out together and we'll go over all the shot sheet and all the rest of that. And when I got to his apartment at 5 a.m., oh, Dulcie, his wife, said, or a girlfriend, said, oh, he's already left. So he undercut me right from the very beginning. And really, it was kind of like, um, uh, you know, it was a little bit of tension from the beginning because he really didn't want anybody's involvement. And uh, I wanted to be totally involved. So that was the basis for a little bit of tension during the shoot. We had a number of incidents which were not pleasant because he was headstrong. And I'm kind of headstrong. And uh, once I'd approved his approach, I thought he would carry it out. But he was an incompetent, so he didn't know how to shoot on a schedule. He didn't know how to work with actors. So I sat there aghast at what was happening to my project. So it turned into a negative experience for me. The whole thing was over two years trying to put together what he'd uh, directed. Had you been on any other projects before that that had gone so wrong? My first picture was Electric Light and Blue with Robert Blake. And then I'd done Gemini with uh, Rita Moreno and uh, Catalanian Little Britches in Mexico. It was all going 78, 79. It was all during the same period. I did a Western with Burt Lancaster, Rod Steiger, and, which was, again, my vision from the beginning. I saw a photograph and got a screenplay done from a photograph and then got it financed and then produced it hands-on in in uh, in Durango, Mexico, with some great stars and great great actors. So I was I was very accomplished. I also made about twenty, thirty documentaries for CBS before that, and was very familiar with directing on set. So it was just a difference from between documentary and uh, uh, and theatrical. I'm sorry, Rupert. My, I think I trailed off towards the end there. I was asking you, had you ever been on a project that had gone that wrong before uh, up to this point? Oh, gone that wrong before? No, never. The film, lots of films. I had done a lot of films, and they were all smooth and fun and interesting. I did a wonderful movie called How to Pick Up Girls for ABC with Bill Persky directing. Tremendous experience. Wonderful joy. I was on the set and approved every shot. We just had a simpatico relationship. And then Gemini with Dick Benner, which was terrific in Toronto, and Catalani with Lamont Johnson, and had a very hands-on producing job with that, since it came from my vision of a, from a photograph to a feature. No, I was a filmmaker. I am a filmmaker. I'd made 19 documentaries for CBS before that as a director and producer. So, yeah, I was very, very comfortable on the set, a lot more comfortable than Michael Wadley. So it's almost difficult for me to ask you questions about it because I know what I've seen, what version of Wolfen is out there is so different, I imagine, than what you were experiencing up until 
when John Hancock came in and, and kind of reshaped the project. No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. That's not at all true. <laughs> John Hancock was hands off. The end of the movie, I was summoned to the Arthur Krim, the chairman of, of uh, United Artists, for a meeting on a Saturday morning and asked me to come in at 10 o'clock. And of course, with Arthur Krim, you always went. And I got to his living room on 62nd Street, and there was Mike Wadley and Bill Bernstein from Orion and Robert Sherman, all of them, the whole brass of Orion. And I got there at 10. They said, Wadley's going to be here at 11. We want to talk to you first. We are $6 million over budget and grotesquely out of control. And we have six more weeks, according to Wadley, to finish this movie. And we're already two weeks over or three weeks or four weeks over the original schedule. And he's got, tell him he's got five days in front of us when he comes at 11. And after that, he's off the picture. And Wadley contested that when he came in at 11 o'clock and he was fired and left the project. And I finished it. I had shot 23 days with a wonderful cameraman who became a big star. Andrei Bartkoviak was the second unit. And I did second unit with a crew of about six and I reshot certain scenes that Wadley done, like the death of Gregory Hines. I shot that scene at the end. There was no end to it. There was no. So I shot for, for I think, four weeks of second unit stuff to pick up the pieces and finish the picture. When we came back and Wadley's disastrous uh, director's cut was uh, uh, four hours and four minutes long, they need, we needed some pickup shots to take it in the direction that I had done when I took over as the director, but I wasn't able to do those pickup shots because the director's guild had been approached by Wadley, who was contesting his being fired, saying he never got to shoot the approved script. Therefore we were in arrears and it was a huge uh, director's guild fight. And so I couldn't base it. And you, Rupert Hitzig as producer cannot finish these two weeks of inserts. That's all it were inserts. More shots of the wolves on Wall Street, for example. So I asked if I could get, I needed somebody from the Directors Guild to kind of, I knew what I was going to finish it, how I was going to finish it, but I needed to have a standby from the Directors Guild. And I went to Milton Katsalas, who was a friend who had an acting school and was in a DGA, and he didn't want to do it. And the next one was John Hancock. He was a standby director that you put on the set so that you can finish the film. But he barely, when you say finish the film, or, or he didn't do anything. He just got shots of the wolves in Wall Street redone in, 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 uh, in Warner Brothers. And, and the, we built the set for the facade of the U.S. Stock Exchange. And we had a big fight because he said, we don't need to get real wolves. It's too expensive. We can use hybrids. And I said, no, you can't. We've shot with real wolves at great expense, and we've brought them in from Palmdale. We're going to real, re, use real wolves for these inserts. But that's all that Hancock did. Hancock was the standby DGA guy because they don't allow, if you know, look at the rule book, the producer ever to take over for the director. And I had gotten away with it for, as a second unit director in New York, but I couldn't do it again for the inserts. I needed to get a director standby. And that was John Hancock because he took the 50,000 and came to the set once or twice. I mean, I guess he was there every day, but he didn't really do very much. What was that four hour cut like? It had 30, 33 banners that said scene missing, scene missing, 
seen missing because he was contesting the fact that we wanted to wrap it up, that we wrapped it up before with those five dead five days ultimatum before he finished what he said was an approved script. And therefore he had the with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The right to finish his film. But when we finally, he was very secretive in the directing, and the director's cut took like four or five months with teams of editors, Chris Liebenson, Richard Chu, and at, towards the end, where there was this real tension, I was living in California to supervise this, and he didn't want me to see anything. He didn't allow me in the trailer. I mean, and I didn't want to make waves, so I stayed away till he had a director's cut. He finally said, I believe it was September 4th, he said, I've got a director's cut because I have to show it because he gets only so many days under the mandate to to edit. So the mandate was up. He'd had enough days that, that the Directors Guild allows the director to, to, to cut his film. So he told me we we're going to show the director's cut. I had no idea what it was. So I went to the Beverly Hills Hotel and picked up Arthur Krim, the chairman of the board. And we drove together to Warner Brothers, and he said, what do you think this film is like? I said, I haven't seen it. He hasn't let me see this cut, so I don't know what it is. So when we get into the projection room, there were about 15 people there, including Bernstein and Metavoy. Uh, he, uh, I stood up and I said, welcome to the director's cut of The Wolf, and finally. And Mike Wadley uh, protested. He said, it's not a director's cut. I've never finished the film. So then we rolled it. I said, gentlemen, it's four hours and four minutes long. That's a great director's cut, isn't it? And we rolled it, and I didn't know what was there. Then we saw it the first time with that director's cut, and it had 34 banners, scene missing banners in the middle of this director's cut. And they got, they shrugged their shoulders and said, what do we do now? And that's when he was not allowed to come back and do it, and I finished the picture. Pleasant experience. It was my dream. You know, it was my dream. Well, it sounds like your dream turned into quite of a nightmare, though. It was a nightmare. I'm proud of the movie, but it was a nightmare. How did you go about shaping that four hours into what we ended up seeing? I think Richard Chu is a genius, and I think we just went at it. I, I can't really remember what happened after that, except that I filled out the scenes that were not completed or couldn't be shut, like Gary Hines' death. There's that scene at the end when his he's dragged off by the wolves. So that, that was not wildly shot. That was my shot. And other shots, uh, which were second unit. See, I'd shot all of the second unit film. What happened with the film was, since we had the Wolfen vision, where the Wolfen could see at night, is Wadley's unit would do the first, the scene at nighttime, like the, let's say the opening, with the Vanderveers and the, and the windmills. And I watched everything that they did. 
And then daytime in second unit with Bart Kowiak and four other, just a, four a skeleton crew, I would go back and recreate exactly the way he blocked it in daytime so that he, we could use the color separation and do the night vision as though they could see the horizon in the distance. It was daytime and it was treated. So, but I matched Wadley's blocking so that it would be simpatico. We could cut between the Wilson vision and the action that was taking place, the primary action. I'm real curious, and this is kind of a dumb question, but I'm very curious about it as far as that, uh, the scene on the bridge and, and those different shots there. Where did you actually shoot those? On the bridge. We walked up there, and when I got down there in the morning, Tom Priestley was the assistant cameraman, and he was, he was going to shoot that. Jerry Fisher didn't want to go up the bridge. So Tom Priestley was going to shoot it. So I got there, and I got there half an hour after call time, 7.30 instead of 7, because as a producer, I didn't usually end up at the same time that the crew got there. And they, nobody, I said, what's going on here? Everybody was assembled at the bottom. Wadley had insisted on using the Lumacrame, which is weighs, weighs you know, 150 pounds, the base, I guess. I don't know. That's I don't know exactly what it weighs, but it's heavy. And you can dissemble the Luma. It's a 26-foot crane that could go out over the Brooklyn Bridge. When I got down there, the whole crew was, hadn't gone up, and it was 7.30, not 7, after the call time. And the bridge man was there with uh, with belts so that they could clip on, but they refused to go up until, we're going to go up if you go up. So you go up first. If you go up, Priestley said, I'll, we'll come up. So I hate heights, but I put the belt on. He put I put the belt on myself, clipped on, and I said, okay, I'm going up the bridge. And I I had worked with Bird Lancaster, so I knew that I had to look 75 feet in front of me and not look down. And I was singing, going up the bridge. And then at the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, before you go up on the tower, there's a straight-up ladder. You kind of unclip and go up six steps on a straight ladder. And that was frightening for me. And at the top, there are no railings. So you get up there, and you kind of feel like you're woozy, and you just get stay away. I mean, I don't like heights, so I stayed away from the edges. And up they came. I took the Luma base on my back. They came up with the rest of the pieces of Luma and the camera equipment and with Eddie Olmos. And the thing that amazed me about Ed Olmos was that we had built a bubble for the radio station on top of the existing Brooklyn Bridge, which was an art department of construction. And I don't know how safe or anything, but Eddie Olmos didn't have any fear of heights at all. And he started, he had to climb as a, an Indian high wire worker. He, he had to climb on top of this other thing on top of the Brooklyn Bridge. So he was up another 15 feet on this thing that we'd created as an art department on top of the bridge. Gave me the willies being up there and watching him do that. But he did. We shot it. It was a great experience. And I never, I look at the Brooklyn Bridge every time in every shot and I said, I was up there. Wow. That was an incredible morning. Almost is just fantastic in there. And that was one of his uh, first booby rolls, if I remember correctly. It was. And he was more than fantastic. That scene on the beach where he shapeshifts, it was about five degrees, 10 degrees in Coney Island where we were. And we had a little tent with a fire with a warmer. And he would take all his clothes off. He was completely bare ass. And then we'd get ready for the shot. He'd take all his clothes off and he'd run down the beach and ran into the water. And it was about. Five to fifteen degrees. I remember it was really cold. And then we go sit in the in his Volkswagen. He had a Volkswagen, and we'd sit in there between takes and put the heater on and listen to rock and roll. 
And uh, he was amazing. He's amazing. There's no fear. Was there any issue with the level of violence that's in the film, especially some of the, the more gory wolf attacks? No. In fact, I thought we minimized the violence because it was all either their point of view and then you know, whack, whack, you know, very short cuts. I don't, it was certainly a lot less violent than most of the movies are now. Um, the decapitation of, uh, of the policeman on Wall Street was an interesting thing because the only time we could get Wall Street to shoot and of course, Wadley insisted on being on the real Wall Street. What, and I had to fence it in all the way around two major blocks in New York City on Wall Street with fencing eight feet high before we were allowed to leave the wolves. So we went on a Saturday night and we had a crane and we had the head when he gets decapitated. That was all live. It wasn't special effects. It was all live on the... Uh, on the set in Wall Street on a Saturday night. It was amazing. <laughs> Could never be never be done now, I don't think. Do you think, was that kind of speaking to the um, the corruption of power and all those things that Wadley was trying to get to? I think so. That was what he wanted to do, that, you know, the, the deep state was watching us and uh, spies. And, and then the Wolfen were no different than the cameras that we have to spy on fellow citizens and things. It was all a big allegory about capitalism destroying you know it was a subtle message but not so subtle but we had a nice we had a nice uh horror film before now the problem with it was i love the film and i'm very proud of it but the problem was orion didn't know whether it was a horror film or whether it was an intellectual arts film which it is more of so it was sold as a horror film and it fell between the it fell between the uh uh, the, 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 whatever, the borders that it, it was sold as a horror film. So the horror enthusiasts that like to go and see a lot of blood and gore were disappointed because it wasn't meant to be that. And then the intellectuals seeing a horror film don't go to horror films. So they said, Oh no, this film's, this is a horror film. We don't want to go. So we fell between the switches there by the ad campaign that they did, uh, the silent killers, they can hear a cloud pass overhead, they're smarter than you, which is all true, but it came across as horror, that they were supposed to be scary. And what Wadley's approach was, was much more the allegory and the story about capitalism, the deep state, and how <clears throat> um, uh, we were all going to hell anyway. So, to, yeah, I think Wadley's a phony baloney, personally. But I don't want to, it's this many years later, I just don't want to leave everybody, I'm going to leave everybody alone. He and Dulcie, his girlfriend, they came to Rome together when we went to Oliver Stone. And during the course of shooting The Wolfen, Diane Venara, who got, I had a young assistant, a young woman assistant, and she was very feminist in that point of view. And she and Dulcie bonded, the, the girlfriend, and Dulcie would be on the set every day. And Diane Venora and Dulcie decided that there was no way she was going to do the nude scene and get in the tub where where the wolves see her in the tub and and she wasn't going to do it. And I said, "You have read the script. This is a fifteen million dollar picture then, which is about forty or fifty now. And you read the script, and you're you're not going to tell me that you're not going to do this scene. I will create an ambience for you. I'll put. I had to put up." curtains in Astoria, 60 feet in the air, to circle her tub so that nobody could see her precious little body. And they took me up 
on charges to SAG and said I was discriminatory against women. And I'm producing a film that is, is an expensive film and she agreed to do a nude scene and then she didn't agree. And so they, they took me up and called me a, a anti female and I had to go defend myself. So uh, anyway, the end of the story was that after all of this, you know, he did take me up on charges. I had to defend myself with the writer's guild, with the director's guild, because he said to the director's guild, he never finished his cut. So he, we had a, like a four week arbitration in front of a man named Ed Mosk at the director's guild. I had four lawyers with me and he had one lawyer with him and, and we won everything. I mean, they just said, well, I'll have to go home. But then a couple of years later, when he got divorced from Delphi, who had been so hostile to me and he'd been hostile to me towards the end, uh, both of them asked me to appear as a witness in their divorce as a character witness. I read something you had what a, a t-shirt made like how many days it had been since yeah 423 days in post-production living in the Beverly Hills Hotel I said it was better in Iran that was during the Iran hostage I was hostage to Wolfen tell me about the score and how the score changed before it came out well Wadley insisted on a, on a on a composer named Craig Saffin who's done a lot of television work and uh, is accomplished and very accomplished but Wadley, in his puristic, nutty state, said, I want only Native American instruments, different instruments like bulrushes and reeds and bamboo and things that make unique sounds. And I'm a musician because from the age of five, I've been playing the violin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When with my teacher was the concertmaster of the Philharmonic, I mean, I was a top violinist at the age of 12. I won the an award in New York, and I was the concertmaster of the Young People's Orchestra, so I have perfect pitch, and I, I know music. So before we, and as a producer, I had to pay, uh, the estimate was $250,000 to record this uh, in four sessions. One morning and one afternoon, one morning, one afternoon, two mornings, two afternoons was scheduled. And I said, before we go into the studio, I'd like to hear the score. So I went over to Craig Saff, and I said, please play the score. And he had a monitor in his in his study and he played this kind of dissonant Aaron Copeland score that didn't make any sense to me. I mean it might have as an individual piece of work, but I said, This is this is this is horrible. This is not gonna take this movie and put it in the mainstream. This is gonna destroy any tension we've got here because it's too unique. So I said to Metavoy and Sherman, I went over to Iran, I said, guys, you gotta listen before we spend the money to Craig Saffin's score. Just go over to the studio and let him play what he did for me. Now, they're not musicians. Mike Metavoy called me, and he said, uh, um, I think it's okay. We think it's all right. So we went ahead and recorded it, 200000 bucks or more. And when I went to the mix with Mike Minkler, the Academy Award mixer at Lionsgate at Bob Altman's studio, um, I listened to this score, and it was as big a disappointment as I thought. So I, tr- I put it on reels one and two, and then I tracked it with tracks 
that were from other films previous. I can't remember them, but some really exciting films. And I invited Metavoy and Sherman to come over before we'd done the whole movie. And I said, come over and listen to this. I think you're going to see now what I was talking about. So we played reel one. And then I played the tracking reel one. And it was like night and day. It had tension. It was interesting. And they looked, he was Metavoy and Sherman looked, they said, what do we do now? And I said, we got to rescore it. Steve Paley was my assistant. He was a photographer, Stephen Paley. And he said, I know about this kid because we needed to have it done. We had a mixed schedule and we had a release schedule. We got to do this in 10 days. And we got to be we're back at the mix. We got to have a score. It was 52 minutes of music. So I met this kid and that Steve Paley introduced to me. And he says, yeah, I think it'd be great. And I listened to a couple of his tracks and I were more traditional and I loved them. So we hired him, and I spent at least three of the ten days on his couch in his apartment, and he wrote a brilliant score. His name was James Horner. Jimmy Horner. He was Jimmy then. Now, because he's going to England or done something, I saw him about ten years later. I said, hey, Jimmy, how are you doing? He says, no, it's James. I'm not Jimmy anymore. I said, where'd you get that accent? Oh, I spent some long time in England. Okay, that's the Jimmy Horner that we, this kid that we, it's 26 years old, that did the score in 50, in 10 days, 52 minutes of music. And we dumped Craig Saffin's score. Dumped it. I mean, overall, Wolfen is still a very effective film, and I'm amazed that you were able to kind of pull it out of, uh, I guess, uh, to, to play on a pun here, out of the wolf's jaws here. Well, I think that's true. I think that credit goes to Chris Liebenson. And Richard Chu, the editors, I, I, more than me. I just know I started working with them, but uh, I don't want to take credit for that. I think it was their brilliance. It was able to bring it down to a reasonable length. And yes, it worked. I thought it was good. I thought it was great. What were the reviews like at the time? You know, I don't remember. I did a movie at the same time called Catalanian Little Bridges that was dumped by Universal, thrown out. And I just read the review two days ago. Somebody sent it to me because I got an offer from MGM to do a series on, on the same movie 40 years later, and the reviews were brilliant. But I don't remember, I didn't remember that either, that Vincent Camby review. But I don't remember the Wolfen reviews. I'm sure if I looked on the web, I could find something. Um, I, did, I do remember them talking about the words, a rather surrealistic picture. I mean, I don't remember. I wouldn't want to misquote them. I wonder what it was, and this isn't necessarily a question for you, but I'm, it, it's... I always am curious about how things kind of travel in waves. And it feels like with Wolfen and American Werewolf and The Howling, which I think was maybe a few years ago. Yeah, all three were at the same time. It's crazy that that werewolves were in the air or wolves were in the air. I think that it's just just, um, a part of this business. There's a connectivity that you don't understand sometimes. If, you know, I have had ideas that have become big hits at the same time that they were being made, but independently, it's just a strange thing that comes into the air and it's like the neurons in a brain that all kinds of linked up and something's in the air or something's in the current events that, that sparked that interest. I, I had, I had no, I just read a great book by Whitley Strieber and said, I think this would make a great movie. And because of my wife and William Morris, I was able to, to convince Whitley Strieber I was the right producer, and he gave me the option. And but um, I had nothing. But we were independent of American Werewolf. I remember it was about the same time, and The Howling too. Well, what are you working on now? Oh, I just wrote a pirate picture that I love—a contemporary pirate picture, 
pirates from 1689 traveling to come to 2019 to get back to the poppy jasper stone that has the eye of the pirate that they've captured and has the key to the bullion. So they arrive in Morgan Hill, California, in a pirate cove that's been built by a millionaire macaroni salesman in the back in his backyard, and and that's and he's got he's found the eye because his his old friend in the town has illegally mined a poppy jasper stone and the eye is embedded in it and he's got the eye so they get the signal because it's been activated by being exposed and they travel and it's wonderful because these five pirates land in northern california have never seen an iphone or electricity or a jacuzzi or a cold beer or anything so it's remarkable because the interrelationships between the two generations is fun and there's romance and tension and it's all good so I'm trying to get that made. We always have a project. I'm doing a lot of videos now for an uh, international group on meditation and mindfulness. I did the Navy SEALs use it before combat and the vets and the, and the uh, homeless in, in Baltimore. I do these videos that hopefully are going to have some impact uh, on the federal government so that they put some money into meditation, mindfulness training for teachers, for veterans who are suffering from PTSD. It's, it all works. So that's my current thing, and I direct plays. I'm directing a play this Sunday uh, called The Cafe Plays. Once a month, I direct these newly written plays. So I keep active, but I want to make the pirate picture. It's called Switcheroo, and I think it's an incredible script. So let's see how we go about it. Somehow, I'm not as uh, commercial or as viable as I was when I was a lot younger, but I'll kid them out. I'll tease them some way. I'll figure it out. Well, Rupert, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. Uh, I just want to leave you with one thought. The whole experience with uh, Wolf, and I'm, I'm very proud of the picture. And there was a lot of blood and sad and sweat on the on the floor. And I will give Wadley one uh, compliment, and that he saw I had a vision, and he stuck to his vision. And regardless, unfortunately, I was the containment factor for that vision, and it wasn't realistically based in a commercial world where you actually have dollars and cents that you have to recoup. So had he had his way about it, he would have probably shot for another year and edited for another two years. Um, he might be a little bit like uh, Terry Malick in that, you know, that, I mean, almost anybody can direct it if they shoot a million feet of film. Almost and they have a good editor. Almost anybody could do that. But that's what Terry Malick's style is, and that's what Swadley's style is. And luckily, he had enough vision to kick it out of the normalcy. might have been a B picture, detective picture or something. And nobody knows whether it would be more commercial had we stuck to the book. But for whatever it's worth, and when I leave this planet and I have something to look back on, I'd be proud that that allegory actually got to the screen in a rather pure form. And that's Wadley's, not mine or anybody else. That was his vision. Up next, we're going to hear from director John D. Hancock. Where were you at in your career when you got approached for Wolfen? Well, I was trying to get uh, weeds on. I mean, I'd had De Niro, and then that fell apart, and then I had 
Mickey Rourke, and I had Danny Aiello. I mean, we were trying to, to get weeds on and not not succeeding, so I needed money. And I was glad when some income came along for Wolfen. So where was the project at when you were asked to be part of it? They had a, I don't know, a three-hour or three-and-a-half-hour. It was far beyond a rough cut. It was something they'd worked on forever. It was quite dull. They were afraid to have a screening of it. Uh, for fear that uh, word would go run around the business that they had a disaster on their hands. And they had, Orion was facing huge, uh, and, you know, this was a time I needed money partly because I'd taken a second mortgage on my house and, and uh, interest was running at 18%. So uh, Orion had borrowed money to do it. So their interest payment was huge, you know, so there was great pressure on them to get it finished and get it released and get that you know, some of that money back if they ever could, you know, they were, it was threatening to destroy Orion. So they were desperate. And, uh, I liked Mike Medavoy enormously. So I was very glad to help them. So what was in that three and a half hour cut? A great deal of Albert Finney would go to a, a trade show that demonstrated security equipment. And he would walk from table to table, examining objects, picking them up, thinking about them, and then go on to the next page, next table, and examine the three or four things that were there very carefully. And there was a, an enormous amount of, of spy services set up where they all kinds of screens and people are in some kind of a dark room. It, it was all this stuff that was there to make the point that that humanity is trying to Developed technology to do what wolves do naturally. It was like a, an environmental picture or something, right? I mean, they took a, an extremely scary book. I don't know if you've ever read the book, but it's very scary and very tense and kind of contained and works as a thriller, you know, as a scary book. And they, in, instead of just like making, making it on its own terms, they decided that they were going to make it into an important picture that made environmental uh, points and uh, destroyed it by just expanding and uh, bringing message into something that was just like a scary book. Yeah, there's that kind of strange, like uh, almost like a terrorist kind of thing that runs through it. Yeah, right, with the Indians. And the, yeah, there was a, a whole bunch of... They, they tried to make an important picture, which is, I, I think, admirable but fatal. And, and in a way, to violate the integrity of, of, of the original writer's intentions is, I, I felt, was a kind of sin against the muse, and I, I had little patience for it. So they hire you to come in, and what is exactly your role on it? Do they say, hey, we need you to fix this? You can't replace uh, a DGA director with uh, with Rupert or with a studio guy they have to have a you have to hire another DGA director and they wanted one that would be respected by the actors because I'd done bang with them slowly and this and that so that if we needed to it was clear that they had not shot any of the wolves they they tried to shoot the wolves uh, on Wall Street but uh, quickly realized that that was not a practical thing that the wolves would run into Little Italy and, you know, it was not a possible production 
you know, they couldn't do it. So they needed to shoot wolves, and they, they, the story wasn't really clear, even though they had all this beautiful footage. And they needed to clarify the story to some degree, so they had to shoot some scenes through that. And they needed somebody to do that that was a DGA director, and I filled the bill. So how much would you say that you shot to fill in these things? Was it just wolf stuff, or was there also uh, some of the actors? I shot a couple scenes and and uh, and the wolves, yeah. And then I imagine it was a lot of reshaping things in the editing room. Yeah, that was the my main function. Is what I I came in, took the picture over as a editor director, really, and uh, with Stuart Pepe and and Chris Lebenson, who now is the highest paid editor in the world. We recut it entirely. Did you work at all with Richard Chu? No, he quit when I came in. Was that like a solidarity thing, or why was that? Yes, yes. I, I I think he'd also he'd worked on it so long and was committed to a certain way of going on it, and and uh, yeah, it was a solid. He left with uh, Michael. And what was your working relationship like with Rupert? It was pleasant at the time. Rupert is a kind of prickly guy. I, I'm quite offended by the fact that he he belittles what I did on the picture now. But, I mean, you know, Rupert shot a, a lot of second unit on this. So if he wants to be competitive for who, who shot more, he shot much more than I did. But I, I felt I kind of saved the day, and maybe he doesn't feel that. I don't know. So was there any, like, restructuring of what came where when it came to the... Oh, my God, yes. We recut the whole picture. What The main thing I did is I threw out the dull parts, and I slowed down the suspense sequences they because they had such a long picture they were just they were taking the suspense sequences and playing them too fast to have any tension so i made most of it move fast and then made parts of it move slower so that the tension built like they're searching a church right the first thing i recut was i slowed that way down and it got tense it started to have you know suspense if you just it bounce up the steps, then it, it's like there's no there's no tension, there's no feeling. What was that experience like working with the animals and shooting the wolves? Uh, it was cold and at night, and, and uh, I had a very good DP who later directed a bunch of he directed Twister and uh, oh, what's a picture of Sandra Bullock on a bus? Speed is that the name of it? It's not easy to photograph wolves and have them. Wolves are are not scary, really. I mean, they're kind of pathetic. And to make them look scary, uh, I mean, the, the book was about not wolves. It was about wolfing. It was about half men, half wolves. It's about a creature that walks upright and is a wolf like the wolf that came out of my closet when I had a high fever as a child that was very scary. I mean, it's so it's it was, I found it hard to to I mean the, the dogs in the omen, right, where they give them extra size fangs and that kind of, those were very scary. But they we we couldn't do that with real wolves cuz you can't mess with them to that degree, right? Without tranquilizing them to where they would be real sleepy and I mean I was not great. I mean, I didn't find wolves gratifying to shoot. I wanted to redo the picture with uh, with a creature, but they didn't want to spend any more money. 
So I, I thought get 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 small actors or you know kids or something to to be the creature. And I wanted to throw out the entirely the the people in the basement there that are researching everything, and I, I just thought that was silly. They wanted to keep it because they'd they'd spent a fortune on the sets. They hired a very very uh, spend spending type production designer and they spent a lot of money on the movie you said they didn't want to do a testing with that long cut did you do a lot of testing once you started to kind of firm this thing up i did i have any screenings i may not have i may not have i don't think we saw it with an audience until we went down to san diego with the finished product what was that experience like do you remember it was a real up because we saw that the picture was going to work to some degree you know, it was like, it was, I mean, they wouldn't have fired if it weren't a disaster, you know. I mean, everybody was a metavoy and all those people were very grateful and happy. And the audience seemed to be, pay attention and yell at the, when we're scared at the proper points. And, you know. Were all the uh, effects and everything done when you came in? No, they were underway, but, uh, and I just oversaw those. I, I didn't contribute much to those. They were had already been worked out. Uh, Blaylock was his name, and he uh, was doing you know the wolf vision and all that stuff. But I, 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 the main thing I did on this is recut it and supervise the mix and change the score. I got rid of the score and brought in James Horner, uh, and I tried to make a scary movie rather than an important ecological statement. I mean, I'm for the ecology. I, I'm. I don't oppose that. I just did see that this was the, the vehicle to try to make a big point about it. You said on, uh, I think you told me on Facebook that Horner had five days to work on that score. I'd be very short, very short, maybe seven. I don't, it could have been five. It was the, the most ridiculously short period that I could imagine. And he came through. I, I, the reason I, I hired him, first of all, he's the, <laughs> He's the son of a production designer that I liked a lot, Harry Horner, who I considered for weeds, and so I knew his father. But also, I liked his score. I thought his score for the uh, the hand, Oliver Stone's picture, was very scary. Were all the actors looped by that point, or did you have to work with them on that? It didn't need much, except I I I I disliked Albert Finney's New York accent. I thought it was ridiculous. So. I looped his. I looped his entire performance. Uh, I went, I think, every weekend for maybe three or four weekends up to Berkeley to Saul Zaintz's sound facility, excellent sound facility up there. And uh, Finney was shooting Annie in San Francisco. I looped every line, and then I got to the mix, and I didn't like what the result. So I played the sync tracks. I just. Uh, what uh, the loops were worse than the sync tracks, uh, so I just played his played what he'd done. What was it about his his voice that you didn't like his accent? English actors have since then become absolutely superb at doing American accents. But if you've ever heard Olivier try to do one, or in the old days the English actors that tried to do American actors accents, uh, I don't know what's made a difference. Maybe they listened to. American television, or maybe they listen to rock music or what it is, but they've really gotten good at it. But they weren't then, and Finney was part of that. He just had, it was like a phony New York accent. So in 1981, there was 
Wolfen, The Howling, and American Werewolf in London. What do you think it was about the early 80s that really brought out the werewolf trend? I don't know. You know, it, it, it's like the fashion industry, isn't it? The, everybody has the same length skirt for a while, and and then there are mob pictures. You know, uh, years ago, I, one of my close friends my whole life is Don Graham, who was the publisher of The Post, right? And he, before he would, took that job, he was... Um, uh, had been a cop for a year or two, and and he wrote uh, uh, two excellent screenplays about being a cop in Washington. And I took him around. Uh, I had done my Academy nominated short, and the studios were all saying, "Bring us whatever you want to do. We want to make pictures with you." So I had, I took him Donnie's um, cop screenplays, <coughs> and they said movies about cops don't make money. And then, of course, that's. You know, for years there, that was all they did with Serpico and, you know, so it, it was like, uh, it, it's like, it's like fashion, you know, the, uh, wh- what kind of pictures they want to make. And, and, uh, it's, cl- it's clear for a while that there, were, I, I liked American Waterfall in London a lot. I thought it was a good picture. Um, and it, it was clear that werewolves are scary. <laughs> Which is ironic because you kind of wanted to go more the werewolf werewolf route. Yeah, sure. That's what it was. I mean, that's what the book was. Ultimately, did the film do anything for you, or was it just a gig? It was just a gig. I mean, I didn't. I, I, I could have put my name on it, but I did not because it wasn't my work. You know, they wanted me to, but I did not. You were talking about trying to get weeds off the ground right at this time, and it took so many more years for it to finally happen. What finally triggered that? Got Nick Nolte, had a, got a star that they wanted to finance. I mean, why they wouldn't finance it with Mickey Rourke, I don't know, but they wouldn't. Yeah, Mickey Rourke was was like a hot property. Was pack. hot at that point, yeah. 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 How was it working with Nick Nolte? It was great. It was like, it's fun like somebody you'd go to high school with or something like that. And he was sober-ish. I mean, he was doing his best to be off drugs and liquor and We'd made a promise to each other, and he pretty much kept it. The one person who never gets enough credit to me is Lane Smith. I always love when he shows up and stuff. I do, too. I, I had done a uh, a Twilight Zone with him, uh, Profile in Courage, and he was real good in that. That's how I knew him. We had a somebody else in that part who uh, uh, died of AIDS while we were shooting or, or got so sick that he could, couldn't continue. And we had to reshoot a scene or two four or five so we collected the insurance and reshot four or five scenes and you get to work with Anne Ramsey too I forgot about that <laughs> yeah I loved her yeah oh she was wonderful and Rita I thought who played the critic was real good too well hey thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate this well good I'm glad it's a pleasure to talk to you Last but not least, we are going to hear from composer Craig Saffin. Tell me a little bit about some of your influences when it came to the Wolfen score. 
Well, I came to it in basically in two ways. I was getting a little tired of do what year was Wolfen? I'm not sure. I think that but, came uh, in '81, so that it probably wasn't too oh, okay. long after you worked on Fade to Black, right? And I had done this series called Dark Room, which was all since. Yeah, I, I, I think what happened with Wolfen is that I two things is one, I thought I'm not going to use synthesizers on something. I'm going to do all these sounds and get just as interesting sounds, but use conventional instruments. And then the other thing was I was always really interested in what's called aleatoric music, which is music that rather than having specific notes has events. So over this period of so many beats, the horn player plays these six notes starting as fast as they can and slowing down. And it's not specific. They're more, so it's every time the orchestra plays it, it's a little different. And I got really fascinated with that because I also really loved the score to Altered States. Do you know that movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we actually covered that a long time ago. Okay, well, that was John Carigliano, who is a really a classical composer who maybe used to a couple of films. But he did that score in that style. And I was uh, hanging out with him in the studio at the time, and I just went, oh, it was so much fun to write like this. So those were the two influences. I was very into avant-garde music since college. And uh, I was into Robert Crumb. Uh, I mean, George Crumb. I'm sorry. I'm confusing him with R. Crumb. George Crumb. And I was into R. Crumb, too, but not for music. Penderecki, Bartok. But Bartok was really earlier and didn't really do that style. But there's a similarity. It sort of comes from that. And then I loved Altered States, and I thought, wow, this is a great movie to do this with, to do this sort of really, really off-the-wall, totally atonal score. <laughs> so so I did it. And I talked to every player. I go, how do you play this? What if you, didn't play, what if you took out your mouthpiece and played without the mouthpiece? How can you play three notes at once, you know, I'd say to a clarinet player? They can do it. You know, in certain fingering, you can do blowing and play more than one note at once. And there's all these bizarre techniques that all these players have screwed around with for years. So I sort of visited every player and wrote down what they could do and incorporated it in the score. It was a lot of fun. How long did it take you to put all that together? Oh, I don't remember. Usually a typical score would be maybe six weeks to write it. I don't know, four weeks to six weeks. It wasn't very long. You got to write fast. Uh, and that's why you always have orchestrators helping you. And, you know, you always need, need a lot of people. To, there's a lot of hands on every score. You know, there's a, when you hear a John Williams score, he has an orchestrator who's working with him because it's just impossible to write that much music for that many players, you know, in eight weeks or six weeks. It's just, so uh, on Wolf and Peter Bernstein orchestrated which means I would sketch everything out and then he would explode the sketches and pull score. It's sort of technical. I could show you if you were here, but uh, it's a weird thing, but it's, it's commonplace pretty much for every composer in Hollywood, starting with Max Steiner. You know, I mean, the stories you hear are amazing. So it was a huge mess. It, it was 
let's just put it this way. You know you're in trouble when I got hired by Michael Wadley and I said, okay, we're going to do this score like Altered States. It's going to be just sound and it's going to be terrifying and sound oriented. And he loved it. This is the director. And then the Rupert comes up to me, the producer goes, Craig, I'm so glad you're doing this. We're going to want to real, you know, you're going to do a great John Williams score like Starfighter. And I go, uh, these, the producer and the director are making two different films and the composer's going to be stuck right in the friggin' middle, which is exactly what happened because you can't, you know, they weren't talking to each other. They sort of didn't like each other. And Michael was wildly and never directed a feature film. He had directed Woodstock, but that was a documentary. And he was of the, that, idea that everybody should just leave him alone and let him do whatever he wanted to do. And, uh, which doesn't really work in Hollywood, you know, and, uh, and the director, literally the director and the producer were making two different films. And at least I got to record the music. And then at least in Trotter records, we released my score as well as, uh, James Horner score. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those, Lose, lose. There's no way you could win at that situation. I was just a pawn. I was so glad when they released your score because that was just a revelation to be like, wow, this is what the movie could have been at one point. Like, I would love to see that rough cut that they talk about where it was so much longer. And I don't know if that's a rough cut or an assembly cut, but just to see what Wadley to Michael, had in it his was head. a final. To the director, it was a final cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they must have cut an off cut what, a half an hour, 45 minutes out of the film and made it more narratively understandable. I mean, the guy was making an art film. That's right. But, you know, it's hard to make an art film when a studio is involved. Yeah, exactly. The only thing, you can only make an art film when it's a little independent picture and, you know, there's not all these big financial and issues and then career issues and studio issues. It's impossible. Well, I do have to say that one of the scores of yours that I go back to very often is the last Starfighter score. That just blew my socks off the very first time I saw the movie in 1984, and every time I've watched it since then. Yeah. Well, that's been a very successful score. It's still, as far as I know, even in the next few months, there's two concerts coming up where they're playing the theme, and it gets played all the time by orchestras, and it's been released three times on CD at this point. So, yeah, that's a, it's, I guess, the score I'm most well-known for. How does that feel to have something that you wrote now so many years ago still be like as popular today as it was back then, if not more? It's great. I mean, I love it, and uh, it was a long time ago, but even at the time I loved writing it, it was super successful score when I wrote it. I could just tell it was a really good score the minute I heard the orchestra play it. Everybody loved it. So it's gotten a lot. Where I said one score didn't get a lot of love, this one's gotten a lot of love. And it feels great. It's actually, you know, it's great for people to know the music and to have been moved by it and still to want to listen to it. And people, you know, orchestras are still playing it all the time. And There's a uh, a musical version of The Last Starfighter. Have you ever heard that? I have, because I sort of met those guys. It was a while ago. I thought it was sort of a silly idea, but I don't think the movie, I don't think the musical went very far. But 
they didn't use my music. They took my theme and sort of wrote it sideways, but it didn't really, it didn't really work very well. You did the music for Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, which is another yeah. film that I absolutely love. I never knew until just recently, and this is kind of a shame on me, that there were sequels to that. And I know you did the music, or at least you're credited for the music for one of the sequels. Did you do the... There's only one sequel. First of all, there's no mo- there is no movie sequel. The movie is standalone. There is a... Then they tried to make a TV series out of it. So there was a pilot, like an hour and a half, television pilot and I did the music for that. So that's it. It's just the, so that's it. It's there's the movie and then there was the TV pilot. Now I think, uh, I think there is a sequel in development right now. Is it Shane Black? Is that the guy named the the director? Anyway, there is a, there is a Remo that is in development. I don't really know if it's ever will be made or I probably will have nothing to do with it. I would guess. But, uh, anyway, that's what I heard. Cause Remo is a series of books that, that lives on and they, they're still writing them. So there's probably a hundred books, you know, it was a whole book, book series that was super popular. When you wrote for something like the twilight zone, what is that like to come into an anthology series and write for, episodes of that and and were you doing because with those things there were like multiple episodes per episode multiple chapters i guess per episode would you write the entire show or would you just come in and do one or two i think usually in twilight zone um i'm trying to remember uh but i i think in twilight zone you'd go in and it would be one episode which would have like three or four stories and you'd have to to write each of those stories in it. And the way I would do it is exactly like I was describing fade to black is each one would have its own unique sound. So there was one, there was one that was just uh, this guy on a boat. John Milius directed it in Vietnam. And that had sort of this, slow melody that just never stopped for the whole thing. It was super moody. Then there was another one about like a kid's TV show. And that was more like slapstick music. You know, each one you'd think of a different style. Over the years, what has been the most fun for you to do? I don't know if there's an answer to that. I mean, I loved a lot of the projects I worked on. I think in terms of fun, I loved Son of the Morning Star. That was a wonderful score and a lot of fun and felt great. That's a miniseries based on the novel, Son of the Morning Star, about Custer and Little Bighorn, which I believe is going to be re-released. I believe the, all the music come out. It was a really beautiful score, if you can hear some of that. Definitely Cheers was a lot of fun, just because... I laughed a lot every time I'd look at an episode to write music to. I'd go, wow, that's amazingly funny. But it was such great, always a great show. It was consistently a good show. Every, I almost never had a bad episode. Uh, definitely Starfighter was a lot of fun just because I love working with Nick Castle. Nick is a blast to work with. Major Payne, he directed that. That was a lot of fun to score uh, with Damon Wayans. So I think, you know, but I've pretty much had a good time. I mean, occasionally 
like in Wolfen, it was sort of miserable. Just the politics became miserable. But, you know, that happens. I mean, that's just the way the business is. You can't have writer's block and be a film composer. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You just have to do it. But I think the important thing is the conception is like going, well, what is the sound of this? What is the, what's the point of view of the music? What is the music doing? What are, what are the instruments you're going to use? That's always the very first thing I work out. And then that almost solves half your problems. Because you, you, you solve things with limitations. Like the minute you impose limitations on yourself, it makes it easy to solve your problems. You have to be inventive, but it's, you're, you're not wallowing in every possibility in the world. You're going, okay, I'm going to do this whole show with string, just strings, no brass, no woodwinds, strings, percussion, and the piano. Boom. End of story. Well, at least it gives you a focus. That, that's always my first, my first move is to figure out what is the sound of this one. Well, what are you working on these days? Uh, well, I just had an album come out of my music in June, and then we had a video come out, I think, in August. And the album is called Sirens, and it's music that's based on uh, impressions of the Odyssey. So I traveled to where I thought all the islands were that were mentioned in the Odyssey. I tried to find them and record on them and get the reverbs from those places and the vibes, and then I wrote this album, and uh, it's out on Perez Saraban Records. So you can hear it out on Spotify, or you can actually buy a CD if you're so inclined. But you can hear it for free on Spotify or on my website. Uh, so that's sort of that's what I've been working on, and now I'm just working on my next album, which uh, is going to be about uh, my thoughts about Los Angeles. So it's going to be impression, musical impressions of Los Angeles, which is where I grew up. And so that's shaping up really nicely. Well, hey, Craig, thank you again. I really do appreciate this. And um, I hope we can do this again sometime. This is wonderful. Okay, anytime. We're back and we're talking about Wolfen. So one thing that I found uh, doing research actually was uh, Rob Hubbard uh, told me about this. He was like, have you been able to track down the commentary track? And I had no idea that there was a commentary track. And I don't think that it has been or ever will be released with the commentary track. But apparently, and I've read different 
names attached to this. I've read Olmos, Heinz, Wadley. I've read uh, Heinz and uh, Finney. So I'm not sure who actually recorded this thing, but apparently a few years ago there was supposed to be a DVD coming out with a commentary track, and then when it hit Blu-ray, people were saying, oh, it'll be there. But no, this thing still hasn't hit the light of the day because, yeah, to your guys' point, and from what we heard with all those interviews, this was a extremely contentious <laughs> film and people are still upset about it. Uh, this came out in 81 and we're still talking about it in 2019 and people still get really pissed off about it. They get pissed off, but it's a great, it's a great movie. Like we were, we were talking about it. it uh, you know, there's enough mystery to it. It's like, it's like a painting that uh, everybody looks at it and they see something different. You know, they bring their own experience to it, their own perceptions and, and viewpoints, and they come away with uh, sometimes wildly divergent things, but it, it it's left open enough that they can really use it to uh, to be impactful um, to them. And, and I think it's incredible that uh, Strieber uh, had, I think he's only had the three movies made from his, uh, from his work, but um, all three of them by different directors. And, you know, uh, very, very striking. Uh, I just saw communion for the first time this week, but the hunger and Wolfen both struck me immediately, uh, as, uh, something extremely special. And, you know, I, I haven't read the books, but except for the Wolfen, and I know that the movie is a lot different than the things that I really loved about the book aren't, uh, aren't in the movie, but, um, uh, but the fact that he was able to inspire three different filmmakers to make three really striking, amazingly provocative, but uh, hard to pin down um, films uh, from his work. I, I think that's that says something about uh, probably the quality of the source material. Yeah, for sure, and yeah, I, I would love to, I would love to hear that commentary track as well. That would be amazing. But um. Am I am I am I remembering wrong? I thought Cat Magic did it not get translated to to the screen, or did it just come alive in my head and feel like a movie? Do y'all remember? I don't remember Cat Magic. I don't know that one. I remember Cat People. Okay, yeah, I think I think Cat Magic might just might just be a movie in my head then. <laughs> but uh, I love I, I love the book, anyways. <laughs> Yeah, as I was uh, reading the book of the wolf, and I kept thinking of uh, Paul Schrader's Cat People because of the whole um, the uh, couples would always be these incestuous uh, brother sister pairs, and I kept thinking of Natasha Kinski and, and Malcolm McDowell in Cat People, and that was right around the same time as well, if memory serves. There's also supposed to be, now this has been in the works since at least 2015, but there's supposed to be a documentary about Wolfen that's coming out called Uncovering Wolfen. And I was trying to talk to the director, but unfortunately timing just did not work out. But uh, if all works out, I will have an interview with him sometime in November. So folks can keep an ear out for that one. But yeah, it's... There's many more stories to be told. I'm very curious what was shot that ended up on the cutting room floor that we will never see. Um, but yeah, that's, it's a very fascinating story to me. And like you guys said, this, despite all of the contention, at the end of the day, I end up thinking that this works, even though I wouldn't have said that when I was 13 years old. I would have said, no, this movie isn't very good. But 
now in my 40s, I was like, okay, yeah, this is a pretty smart film. Maybe I was just too dumb for it. I, I appreciate it a lot more now than I did when I saw it when I was 15 or whatever as well. And I had no idea that documentary was possibly in the works. And, you know, I guess Stryber, is, he's still around. Then he initially meant to write a sequel to The Wolfen, Call of the Wolfen, I believe. And if I could, I, whether it's a good novel or not, I wouldn't care as long as I could read some more of that pack thought, you know, that, cause that, that to me is where the novel comes alive the best is when we're in the head of the wolf and and it's so alien to me or to to like my conception of what it means to be human i guess the way these wolf and think and process sensory data and i'll i would love to just read more of that please that was far and away my favorite part of the book was when especially in the second half of the book when we get the uh, heavy reliance on the point of view of the wolf and um, uh, that, that was what was really special and of course couldn't really translate to the screen um, because the, the they weren't using language and, and things like that but uh, and it probably would have been a, a big failure to try and try and do it that way but um, uh, that was absolutely special about the book I would I would definitely read a sequel. If, if he had one, I thought it was very interesting too that he said uh, he doesn't. I I don't think this was in uh, this was in an interview in a magazine, maybe, and 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 maybe this was the young writer having early success talking. I don't know, but uh, he said he did not consider his work to be complete until it had been adapted as a film, until it existed in the film medium as well as uh, uh, in a novel. Um, I thought. Well, that's I've never heard a, a writer say that. Yeah, that, that was that was a, I remember that that was weird because he has that math thing where he says only five percent, like a novel only touches at most five percent of the people out there, whereas a movie touches like thirty percent or something. And so, his kind of standard for a novel's success is what pie wedge of the population it actually reaches out to you know and he, he sees movies as having the biggest reach and so for that reason his novel isn't complete until it's had that biggest reach which I, I agree is a dangerous way to think i think of course i would think this and i'm, I'm sure y'all do as well that the novel is in itself complete it doesn't need translation to the screen to be effective or to have impact yeah maybe he means uh that it's gone out there and it's inspired someone else to create and keep thinking about what he was working with and, and that maybe that's what he means, that it, it continues yeah. to perpetuate uh, thought and, and creativity and, and people uh, uh, reflecting on the things that, that he was trying to pull out of out of the ether. If people can't wait necessarily for that documentary, I do highly recommend the book Hancock on Hancock by Michael Doyle, which has a whole chapter about Wolfen. And he got to interview Michael Wadley and Hitzig and Hancock, obviously, because this whole book is about Hancock. And it is another one of those Rashomon things where people just remember things incredibly different. And that seems to be the way when we're talking to Rupert Hitzig about stuff. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Rosemary's Baby. Talk about smart horror. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jed and Steven. So, Jed, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, the latest is I've still got one book in print, and I've got a teenager in braces right now. So please go out and buy my book, Peckerwood. <laughs> I would really appreciate it. And uh, so they don't start reclaiming a tooth at a time. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at Jedediah Ayers or the my blog where I talk about crime, fiction, and film, Hard-Boiled Wonderland. And Stephen, what's keeping you busy? What's keeping me busy right now is the proofs from my April novel, Saga, The Only Good Indians, which is a slasher set up in Montana on the reservation. That'll that'll hit on April 7th. I say hit. That'll happen on April 7th. Who knows if it'll hit, you know? But um, um, then in June or July, I think it's June probably, I have a novella out with Tor.com, Night of the Mannequins, which is another slasher. I just finally decided if slasher is where my heart is, then why don't I, why don't I always write where my heart is, you know? Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
daggers of moonlight Murder the sheets In the stink of four-dollar room And daddy's gone hunting For a dime bag of schoolboy Tied up with a yellow balloon Hush, little baby, daddy in school. I cover you up with a blanket of snow. By the time I make Jersey, you'll be in heaven in a pretty blue shoebox. I know. Sing a song of ten grand With a pocket full of dough And I can't take you to Baltimore Wake got up in heaven Heaven looked down below There's a little lost angel Blooming in the snow I want to tell you a little something about us. We're the Boogie Down Production Crew. And due to the fact that no one outside there knew what time it was, we have to tell you a little story about where we come from. South Bronx, the South South Bronx. 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 Many people tell me this style is terrific. It is kind of different, but let's get specific. KRS-One specialized in music. I'll only use this type of style when I choose it. Party people in the place to be KRS1 attacked. You got dropped off MCA cause the rhymes you wrote was whack. So you think that hip hop had its start out in Queensbridge? If you pop that junk up in the Bronx, you might not live. Cause you're in South Bronx, the South South Bronx, South Bronx, the South South Bronx, South Bronx, the South South Bronx, South Bronx. Scott LaRock to express one thing. I am a teacher and others are kings. If that's a title they earn, well, it's well deserved. But without a crown, see, I still burn. You settle for a pebble, not a stone like a rebel. KRS One is the holder of a boulder, money folder. You want a fresh style? Let me show you. Now, way back in the days when hip hop began, with Coca LaRock, Cool Herc, and then Bam. Boys ran to the latest jam, but when it got shot up, they went home and said, Damn, it's got to be a better way to hear our music every day. People was getting blown away, but coming outside anyway. They tried again outside and see the park. Power from a street light made the place dark. But yo, they didn't care. They turned it out. I know a few understand what I'm talking about. Remember, Bronx River, rolling thick, with cool DJ Red Alert and Chuck Chill out on the mix. When Africa Islam was rocking the jams, and on the other side of town was a kid named Flash. 
Madison and Millbrook projects. Casanova all over, you couldn't stop it. The Nine Lives crew, the Cypress boys, the real rock steady taking out these toys. As odd as it looked, as Wallace it seemed, I didn't hear a peep from a place called Queens. It was 76 to 1980. The dreads in Brooklyn was crazy. You couldn't bring out your set with no hip hop because the pistols would go. So why don't you wise up, show off the people in the place that you are whack? Instead of trying to take out LL, you need to take your homeboys off the crack. Cause if you don't, well then their nerves will become shot. And that would leave the job up to my own Scott LaRock. And he's from South Bronx. South, South Bronx. South Bronx. show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.